Hey, this is Licia Naff, and I am Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek The Next Generation, and I'm here with Matthew on Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week, we're continuing to check out some encore episodes of classic Trek Untolds, and this one is basically a two-for-one special. One of my favorite interviews I've ever done in this podcast was with Alicia Naff. You may remember Alicia from her two appearances on Star Trek The Next Generation as Ensign Sonia Gomez, first appearing in Q Who, and then later The Samaritan Snare. And as it would turn out later on, she'd reprise that same character over 30 years later to show up in all places on Lower Decks. But this time around, she was not an ensign. She was promoted to a captain. Alicia's career in performing is a very fascinating one with a lot of memorable moments, as you're about to hear. But eventually, the glitz and glamour of Hollywood wore off, and she set her sights on a new frontier. This time in journalism, where she broke a pretty huge story that I would say definitely changed many people's lives, including her own. Now, as I mentioned, Alicia appeared in TNG and in Lower Decks, and in turn, that actually led to two separate interviews with her. That very first one was episode 30 back in November 2020, and 11 months later, Alicia came back, this time to discuss her time working on Lower Decks. So, in this Encore episode, I'm combining these two interviews into one to make this the all-encompassing entire story of Alicia's time in Trek, along with a few other highlights of her life, career, and her charity work. Now, speaking of, longtime listeners of this show will recognize Licia from the ads I run for her non-for-profit organization, Drive-By Do-Gooders. And yeah, you're going to hear her plug this a few times this episode, because after all, this is two separate interviews, and both times we spoke about what she was doing. But I think it's important to hear this again, and I'm not going to cut these parts out, because really, you know, when we first started talking, that was at the early, early days of COVID, and again, we did the interview a year later. And not to overuse this word, but I think it was important to hear really what has changed as COVID continued to ravage the homeless communities in LA, and what Lisa's group has been doing and continuing to do to combat this. And by the way, I can also say that thanks to folks just like you, Licia ended up getting reconnected to the Star Trek world and began offering Star Trek autographs in exchange for donations to that very same not-for-profit. And she told me that the Star Trek ones in particular have done extremely well. So, shout out to not just Licia, but also to those of you who donated and helped out a truly great cause, and this is something that you can continue to do, which you'll hear about later in this show. To me, Licia was also one of those big milestone interviews for me, because it was really a chance for me to kind of flex my muscles as an interviewer. Uh, you know, it definitely helped that Licia was just really very much an open book. There was nothing that was taboo to discuss. Everything was on the table, and we were able to just go right into things super in-depth, hard and heavy. And I know for a fact that I got a lot more people checking out the show after that interview with Licia because of what we spoke about, because of how we spoke about it, I think, too. So for me, it's a very important interview on a lot of levels, and I'm really excited to bring this one back to you guys, because I feel like this is the interview that kind of started to put me on the map a little bit as a Star Trek podcast worth checking out. And that's why I'm so excited today to once again bring it back to you. But this time around, it's the entire story from start to finish with everything in between. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get ready to hear that entire story from Licia Naff herself. But before we get started with the show, I want to remind you to check out the Trek Untold Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold. 
It's the best way to stay up to date on what's happening with the show, as well as to have early access to new episodes, the chance to ask questions to upcoming guests, and much more. And when I say that, I mean that I'm also working on how to make this Patreon experience better for everyone. So now is definitely a good time to jump on board and become a member of the Trek Untold family. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Shout out, of course, as always, to show sponsor Triple Fiction Productions, who have been with us since episode one and are still here with us after episode 100, whose 3D printed Star Trek inspired merchandise you're going to learn more about later on in this show along with a few other Trek-related folks who I would love for you to support. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the line, you may recognize her from Star Trek The Next Generation, but she's been in plenty of other productions that we're going to discuss today, some of which you may not even realize she was. Uh, and we also got some of the things that she's been working on the past few years that are pretty important, pretty interesting things. Uh, and that would be Alicia Naff. Alicia, how are you today? Oh, my God. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. I'll take it. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, so first things first, I like to ask this question to all my guests. Uh, and that's what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, it, probably, it had to be the very first one because I'm old. Um, and and just William Shatner and that big kind of big chest of his and the big voice. And um, Scott, I always, you know, coming in and saying, I've given her all I've got, you know, and I don't know just the old Star Trek. And it was really amazing to me that when I found out it only ran for such a short amount of time, you thought it was just this huge empire of, of episodes, but it was actually a very small amount compared to the, the new versions and the movies and stuff. It's pretty amazing. And it's, you know, Star Trek was one of the first shows to be syndicated and that's part of why it got so big and popular. So yeah, it is crazy. It's just only three seasons, but it's such an icon. Right, right. So uh, let's talk about some origins of Alicia and Naff here. Let's dive back a little bit. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit about uh, where you grew up, who your parents were and what they did, and uh, what you wanted to be as a kid when you grew up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. And um, let's see, in the 70s, <laughs> um, I got a fake ID by the time I was 14. I was, you know, I had a car also. My parents kind of were busy and so they just gave my little brother and I what we needed to be on our own kind of we were latchkey kids but in a weird way that worked for me because I had a lot of freedom and I would go to discos and I, I was going to dance contests my first love was dance because of the Carol Burnett show and the, all of the dancing and all the costume changes and I was just like that's what I want to be when I grow up it wasn't really even thinking of acting even though I did plays and movie shows and performances in the living room for my parents all the time and I would drag my little brother into fashion shows and dress him and throw him out there and I remember one time we were very young for the finale I made him go out there naked <laughs> like I was you know I don't know some like twisted Diane von Furstenberg or something um, so I was always performing but it was really just for my parents and then very early on at school Went to Catholic school my whole life, but my parents didn't care about, you know, Catholicism, really. It was just Vegas, and it was the better of the schools, I suppose. Um, my dad worked in the hotel business, and I got a chance to see some of the theater that came through at the hotel he worked at. And one of them was your good man, Charlie Brown, and then Jesus Christ Superstar, and then Hair. 
And I would bring those images in because I would see them a lot to my classmates and be director and producer and costume designer and prop master. And I would create these plays for all the kids at school. And once in a while, the teachers would get wind of this because we do it at lunch or after school. We got to go from each grade performing it. And so that was kind of cool. I kind of, I don't know, I kind of peaked in elementary school, to be honest. I really did. I was just, you know, I had nothing in my mind stopping me. And it was just so much fun. So then, you know, growing up in Vegas, and then once in a while coming to LA with my dad on vacation, it was like, I got to be here, Um, mainly because of the weather, not necessarily because of Hollywood. But when I got old enough and I started studying dance in in high school, um, my dance teachers told me about dance teachers here in L.A. And I talked my dad into letting me in my junior year for the summer study dance out here. And at the end of that summer, I asked the teacher, Jaime Rogers, if I could have a scholarship. And then he said yes. And I went to my parents and said, I've been offered a scholarship. Can I stay and finish high school out here? Because I can't go back to Vegas. just Vegas is not necessarily the Vegas you see now with pyramids and roller coasters and all the craziness. It was just desert for us. It was just so boring, you know. There's nothing but like quaaludes and hot tubs and bad influences, to be quite frank. <laughs> you know. So I ended up being able to move out here. And by the time I graduated high school, I got a job on fame. Um, that That's how old I am. I, I acted in the pilot, which got me my SAG card. And I was on the series as a dancer. And once in a while, if they had a dancer that had a, they needed to have a acting role for, they'd give it to me. And so I really enjoyed that for a couple of years and then moved out of that to um, just acting full time because that was so much easier than dancing, to be quite frank. And that was that story. <laughs> so did you take any classes in between your time? Uh, once you basically got out there, uh, did you take any classes to improve your acting, your dance? Uh, did you go to school full time for that? Or were you just working full time at that point? Um, I was working quite a bit. I was lucky to, to work a lot, but I never stopped taking classes. And I did theater all the time. In fact, I was in the middle of a play when I got Star Trek The Next Generation. And um, my understudy had to go on a couple of times. Um, so that was just so fun. Doing theater really, I mean, if anyone ever wants to act, that's the way to go. Because when you're doing TV and film, it's it's very small little segments. It's it's out of uh, out of context a lot of times. They're doing, you're shooting the end at the beginning and there's no flow. And learning how to create a character and be on stage just gives you the training to be able to knock out anything. Um, so yeah, I was always in classes, Daryl Hickman for years and years and um, gosh, all kinds of different method techniques and stuff like that. But basically, you know, you have your bag of tricks and then you get on set and it's all that kind of goes out the window. You memorize your lines you, and then you get bossed around and you do what they tell you to do, you know. So one thing that was interesting, I was able to work for the 10 years that I worked um, before I moved out of acting. But in my day starting in 1980, 81 through the very early 90s, ethnic was not in. So my entire career was the girlfriend, you know, the friend of the lead, the white lead. I was a hooker, prostitute with a heart of gold, maid, uh, runaway, drug addict constantly. Um, I don't know. I did so many prostitutes. I was, you know, I don't smoke, but I was always smoking in scenes and wearing a lot of jewelry and makeup and 
Oh, I, you know, one time I was on uh, General Hospital for a while. Was it General? No, it was Young and Restless. I had a recurring role in Young and Restless and I played the mafia's girlfriend. And then I had a recurring role in General Hospital where I played a runaway and then I got sky. I was the skyjacker's girlfriend. In those days, they didn't call it hijacking. They called it skyjacking. So it was always like whoever was dark, I could play, you know, which which kind of was defeating in the end. So I wasn't able to kind of move up and do bigger roles and stuff like that. However, I probably should brag just a little bit. Can I, Matthew? No one really knows this, but I was nominated for an Emmy for best best performance in a TV movie. So I do have that as I walked away from the business. Um, I, I did have a little, you know, I got to go to the awards and I was shocked when I wouldn't, didn't win because I was a fucking narcissist at the time. Now I'm just, you know, an old-fashioned housewife. But at the time, I, was, I really thought I was going to win. So I did have a fun career, but it was kind of limited, you know. And uh, can you just remind us what that Emmy nomination was for? Um, it was for um, Best Performance in a TV Movie. Um, and it was for, um, a TV movie called the perfect date. I don't even know if you can even find it anymore. I, I actually did try to look for that one. I couldn't find it. You, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I probably couldn't find it anymore. Yeah. I was beat out by a girl who, who was, um, handicapped in a wheelchair and she won. And I was like, she really was a handicapped person in a wheelchair. And I was like, <laughs> darn, you just can't. You know, you can't beat nuns and handicapped people. They win all the time. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, fame. That was your first television gig, right? Yes. And so how was that experience? Because you're basically pretty much fresh into the industry at this point. And fame is a pretty big deal at the time for folks who don't know. Fame was first a movie, then it became the TV series. Yeah. Uh, and that show was a pretty big deal. Uh, so what was it like just to jump right into that? Um, it was kind of difficult for me personally. Um, I, I learned a lot. It was at the MGM studios. So, you know, driving to the set and parking your car and walking, you know, to these gigantic sound stages, that experience just made one tingle. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm part of, you know, this history, Hollywood, old Hollywood. And it was just you know, it, amazing. It really was amazing. Um, we got to wear Bob Mackie outfits all the time and um, it was a little difficult. Um, Debbie Allen um, um, was a taskmaster. Um, she brought in her dance company from uh, West Side Story from New York to to fill in. Uh, I was the only one who was hired out here from L.A. and the rest of them came out from New York. And they were tough, tough ass dancers and they all knew each other. And I was pretty much the black sheep. And so I was, I was kind of I was very intimidated. I felt very small at the time. I didn't have a, I had zero self-esteem. Um, what was nice is that the actors though, the lead actors, especially when I would get um, guest star roles were so humble and nice and they were normal and really, really nice, nice people. But the dancers were, you know, all up and this thing. And, and Debbie Allen was very, <laughs> she was a real cunt to be honest. You know, what the fuck? I'm not in the business anymore. And she was a horrible, horrible person. She really, really, took advantage of her power and she was a narcissist and very, very controlling and shaming. She, her, she was really big into shaming people. And so I, it was a rough time. Um, I left, I quit. Um, what happened was Flashdance was looking for the Jennifer Beals, but before Jennifer Beals even came onto the scene, they were 
the producers and the director, Adrian Lyne, were shadowing me and they asked if they could watch me uh, in, in dance rehearsals over at M- MGM. And Debbie Allen hated that for some reason because the star was off of her for two seconds. And they, you know, watched me rehearse and shoot and then took me to parties. And I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. Um, it was really quite, <clears throat> quite an adventure. You know, they they took how I would cut my shirts, like, you know, and undress and take off my bra underneath the, the sweatshirts and all of the behavior of a dancer. You know, they were studying me. And when it came to the final, final screen test, Debbie Allen wouldn't let me go. She wanted, and we were just being extras on the set that day. When dancers weren't rehearsing or shooting, we had to <clears throat> fill in at, in the um, classroom. And um, she wouldn't let me go. And it was like, this is my big break. It was, it was devastating. Um, so uh, I went anyway. And it was all, way, all the way out in Paramount, I think it was. And I met Jerry Bruckheimer in the elevator and I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, I could barely breathe. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, I choked at the audition. I, they had me eat crackers because it was a meal scene. We're eating lobster, but they had me eat dried crackers. and My mouth was dry and I'm trying to talk to the lead actor. I forgot his name. He's very famous. And I, it, it just had a mouthful of crackers. <laughs> just. I didn't feel very good about my performance and obviously I didn't get it. Um, but when I saw the movie, it was like, that's, I mean, in so much of, of what they saw me do and hanging around me constantly, like for a month was in that film, you know, all of my behaviors and my mannerisms and the way <clears throat> a dancer my age acted. And she even looked a lot like me, like the hair and the clothes and all that stuff. So anyway, that day I came to the set after I auditioned and I walked into her trailer and I was going to quit. Um, and she said, she, she, uh, she said, Oh good. I need to talk to you. And I go, great. I need to talk to you too. And I'll never forget it. It was like this standoff where she, which, which she said, you're fired. And I said, well, I'm, I was in tears and shaking because she's very intimidating. She says, well, I'm firing you. And I was like, that's fine. And she marched me like a little kid into onto the set where the dancers were rehearsing. And she said, do you want to tell the dance company what's going on? And I was, I was like, I've quit. What am I even doing here? I don't, I, I was so intimidated. So she said, you know, Lisa's going to be taking a break from us. And maybe if she's learned her lesson, she can come back in two weeks. And I was like, I was like, in my head, I'm never coming back. I mean, never. I mean, this is, she was so horrible to me. And I left just like dazed and confused by being so power tripped. But that was, a you know, a really good beginning on how Hollywood is. Um, you know, there are those who start moving up the, 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 the scale and they take it, they take it to heart and they, they, they think they, you know, they lose a sense of humanity, I suppose. I don't know if Debbie Evelyn ever did have any humanity. She, From what I hear, she's exactly the same, and she can call me. <laughs> I want this to go everywhere. She was really, really a terrible, terrible influence, terrible person. Um, but it made me stronger. I left. I didn't have a job, but boom, I just started to work constantly. I, I got my equity card. I started to do leads in, in equity theater. I got soaps, and then I just you know, started to do one 
TV show after another. I got Clan of the Cave Bear, which was really fun. I got to go up to uh, Vancouver and the Northwest Tundra Territory. That was a six-month gig. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about Clan of the Cave Bear because that was with Daryl Hannah. And I'm hoping it sounds like it was a better experience for you as well. Um, oh and that was also God. like the first time doing prosthetics, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I, I became known for doing prosthetics because if you can tolerate doing, you know, the, we had a two-month rehearsal. This kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. There was a two-month paid rehearsal and a four-month shoot. It was insane. And we had brow ridges and fake teeth and we had to put these nose extenders in. And they made us not shave. And I'm half Lebanese and half Brazilian. So I became very hairy very quickly. <laughs> it, was, it was the best. That was one of the best experiences of my life. It was so much fun. It was a, a 90 degree turn. Um, it was great. I feel like this is another film that you did that no one ever asks you about. Uh, but I know it's come up a few times. That's Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town. Oh, right. And, and yes, I did watch it for my research. I sat through the entire oh, film. <laughs> You poor thing. I mean, it was it was a B film and I don't mind B films. You know, nowadays they call them independent films, but it wasn't it wasn't funny enough, scary enough, zombie enough. It was just it was a bad film. I mean, it was, I it was 90 minutes. That's my review of it. It's 90 really? minutes. <laughs> oh, thank God. I mean, they, they call it a cult classic, but it wasn't. But you know what it did? It taught me how to ride motorcycles and I ride motorcycles to this day. I've never, ever stopped riding road, my, riding motorcycles. I've got a fat boy, custom fat boy, and, you know, I'm all of 5'2", and whenever it's warm out, I'm now a fair-weather biker. If it drops before 70, you're not going to see me out there. (laughs) But, you know, for decades now, I've been riding motorcycles. Some of the fun things I know about that film is it got Billy Bob Thornton his SAG card. It was his first acting job. He'd already sold and won an Oscar for Sling Blade. Um... But apparently he needed his SAG card. So he played a husband of one of the biker chicks and he was a wife beater. And, you know, I never got to meet him because I wasn't in those scenes, but I found that kind of hysterical. Um, We shot it out in Ridgecrest, California, and we all learned to ride motorcycles. And that was another uh, awesome, awesome experience, even though the movie was kind of silly. It was about, you know a female biker gang who drives into this, you know, desert town that's being taken over by zombies. And we decide to kill the zombies. And my weapon was a, I think it was a staple gun. I forgot. I mean, everyone had a weapon and I had, you know, it's just some stupid weapon. Like I killed them with staple guns or something. Um, I barely remember actually shooting the movie. I just remember motorcycle riding because that became my life. I just, it gave me so much freedom. It was like, to be quite frank, Matthew, it was like, this feels, when I ride a motorcycle, it feels like this is why I'm alive. This is why I'm on planet Earth. That and really good sex, you know, is the only two things that put me in that place of, oh, that's why I'm a human being, you know. I mean, other than being spiritual and all that and being a good person. So I'm a, I'm a motorcycle fanatic. Um, none of the other girls ride. Um, I bought my motorcycle from um, the movie and basically I turned over my entire salary literally back to them and got the bike. Then I just customized it and then upgraded and upgraded and upgraded. They've always been Harleys for some reason. Maybe that's because it was the first bike I you know, got. Um, so that's that story. Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town. I mean, it's you want to torture yourself and watch a bad B movie, but it is, you know, hot chicks on bikes and, 
Chrome Hearts is a really big um, uh, fashion line and jewelry line. They did all of our, um, in fact, the movie was called Chrome Hearts, but at the last minute they, they changed it to Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town. But Chrome Hearts made our jackets and our jewelry and, and you know, that whole image, that whole hot biker image with chains and crosses and all that kind of stuff. I became, I wasn't really a method actor, but whatever role I did, I kind of walked away still being that person because I was very young and didn't really have a good sense of identity of myself. So for, for you know, whatever movie I leave, I'm still that character for a while. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schillerman. And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Unfold. 
All right, so Alicia, let's jump into Star Trek The Next Generation uh, because you came aboard to play Ensign Sonia Gomez. Uh, your first appearance was in Q Who. So mm-hmm. let's just kick things off first by how did you get the role of Ensign Gomez? Oh my gosh, okay. Well, I was um, doing a play. I had a lead in a play at the time over at the Zephyr Theater and um, we were already uh, I th- we were already in the run. When I'm doing a play, when you when anyone is doing a play, I would imagine if there's any you know actors out there, your chops, your your acting chops, your fluids are really going, and you don't have a lot of stage fright. It's just you you're in the zone of of what the craft of acting is. So I was I went over it was just, it was a Paramount again. Yeah, it was a Paramount, and um, there's you know it was a long casting call. Um, there was Tons of girls in the waiting room. Um, her, the character was Jewish at first. They called her Ensign Sonia Sussman. So they were, I don't know, for some reason, uh, she was Jewish. Uh, so, I, you know, there's a whole bunch of girls who looked exactly like me. And I was the very last one to audition. And I remember in one of my acting classes, uh, the Meisner method, it was I was studying at the time. It was like, the longer they make me wait, the better I'm going to be. So I just kept saying that in my head, because usually you just get nervous and don't know when you're going to get called. I was the very, very last one. And I walked in there and I, I don't know, I just was so focused and I went for it. And it was just for the casting director, but she was so well known at the time. I wish I remember her name, very famous casting director, that you booked right off of her recommendation. Um, she, she found Niles from, um, the, the character of Niles and Frasier from the same situation. She just had this eye for finding talent. And so producers didn't have to come in and see you. So she just suggested me and boom. Now here's the deal for those Trekkies. I'll tell you some, some inside info. So, you know, the canon, I mean, it's like the Bible, um, there really is an Ensign Sonia, and maybe her name is Gomez. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but her it's written that she becomes Jordy's love interest. That Jordy falls in love with this Ensign so much that he's willing to do this life changing surgery and possibly, you know, fatal surgery to remove his glasses so he can see because he falls in love with me so much. Problem was, um, it was at the very end of the season. We were the, shooting the last two episodes is when they brought me in. The two episodes of uh, my character, they made her kind of a comic relief. Uh, or maybe I just evolved it into being that because I, I tend to, you know, have a funny bone in my nature. But it was written that light, like that. I was kind of like a bumbling, young, wide-eyed you know, star struck kind of, and I, you know, just looked up to Jordy as a mentor. And so what happened is over hiatus, you know, the producers decided not to bring me back as a regular role because they thought Jordy would never fall in love with somebody like me. And they were right. I mean, you know, the way they shot it, the way they edited it, the way they wrote it, when I look at it, Jordy's not going to fall in love with someone who seemed so young and so wide eyed and so goofy you know, kind of just not really sophisticated enough for him to want to do a fatal surgery to remove these glass, you know, to give him sight. 
So it turned out that they never found, they never did evolve any character like that. He played the rest. And from what I recall, am I right, Matthew? He never took the, he was always blind, right? Uh, the visor kind of sort of came off in the movies. Um, so oh, that was it right. briefly. But yeah. But other than that, I mean, yeah, for the rest of the actual TV series, the visor was always on. Yeah. Yeah. And what was really fun is working with LeVar Burton. Oh my gosh. Um, they were shooting a Mission Impossible at the time. So Tom Cruise had security everywhere and, you know, lots of sound stages were blocked off and I'm like, what's going on? And I was like, oh, it's Tom Cruise. But I walked to LeVar uh, Burton's, um, wasn't really a trailer. It was more of like a suite that was on the, you know, like an apartment because he shot there so much. And it was done like this new age Bodhi tree spiritual. It had incense burning and candles and drapes. And we sat on pillows across from each other and ran lines. And I was like, wow, this guy is so spiritual. And, and he was the real deal. You know, we rehearsed with, you know, looking at each other. And he's so connecting. He's such a good actor. My God, you know. Um, I'm looking into his eyes and they're watery and so loving. And then I forgot when we started to shoot that he put that on and all of that connection that actors love to have was gone. Um, you know, I worked with it anyway, but it was kind of, oh yeah, he's going to be like that. And the other thing is the guy who um, is covered in gold data. Data. Okay. The Android data. Yeah. Brent Spiner. Yeah. First of all, all of those actors, by the way, are so sweet. I mean, so sweet. They, you know, said, what's your name? And they got to know me. And there was no, like, star tripping. Nobody had a star trip thing going on. I mean, except maybe Captain Picard, but that was because he was, that was his character, you know. But Offset, he was really, really nice. You, oh, I'll tell you another Star Trek secret. <laughs> well, you guys might, you know, already know this. So, you know how all the men look like they're built, like they've, you know, none of them have, have physiques whatsoever. They're all got scrawny shoulders or pot bellies or they're thin or they're fat. That's built into their costume. So it looks like, you know, I, I when I when I met uh, Patrick Stewart, he, you know, he, he, he just looks like a thin British guy, you know, and then you, he's got the outfit on. It looks like, you know, he works out every day and all of the characters are like that in real life. They, you know, just are normal physical human beings, but the outfits. And the other thing is they're hyper crazy about your hair and your outfit. Each actor has two people studying them and walking around with them at all times. One is to make sure there's not one wrinkle. They're pulling things down and tucking things in and making things look smooth. It has to look perfect. And, oh, here's something that happened. Between episode one and two, oh, they did reshoots on episode two. But they had wrapped the season, and I called the producer's room. I said, look, I'm thinking of cutting my hair, and they were fine. But two weeks later, they needed me to come back for a reshoot. My, I had cut my hair. And they went ballistic for some reason. You know, people, you know, sets the... People are under a lot of stress. So there's a lot of high strung emotions and they were extremely upset that I cut my hair. So very quickly, um, Michael Westmore, who's a very, very famous um, makeup artist and he did Clown of the Cave Bear and he comes from that Westmore family. He got hair extensions and they made sure that I matched. But prior to that, one day we were shooting um, episode, before episode two, that we um, it was just about to start episode two. They put me in one of those golf carts 
and I'm driven to the producers and writers room. And I'm like, they didn't tell me why I didn't know what was going on. I could tell that it wasn't good. And I was like, I was really scared. (laughs) Just like, am I going to get fired? I mean, what's going on? You know, this was, again, I was just star-eyed. I was thinking this could be my big break, blah, 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 blah. So I go into this, you know, room and it's one of those big conference tables. And honestly, there's maybe 16 to 20 people in there. And they had some big TV sets and monitors and they, ran some of the daily, some of the footage from the first episode and they would freeze frame on it. And they would go, you see that? You see that? You see that? You know what they were pointing at? Flyaways in my hair. And I had a shag haircut. At the time, I didn't have Star Trek hair. And what they came to show me, I don't know why they were showing me. I don't know why I was involved. (laughs) But they brought in the talent and not the, you know, hairdressing team. But Maybe the hairdressing team was in there. I don't remember. I was just so afraid and scared. But basically, it had nothing to do with my acting. You know, it had all to do. And my hair looks pretty much the same as it did then. Just lots and lots of layers. But I don't think Alicia Neff has ever had a bad hair day in anything I've seen her in. <laughs> oh, you're sweet. <laughs> but oh my God, you know, so they had to make it helmet hairish. And someone was following me all the time, moving my hair and straightening my hair and you know, it's very, very rigid, making sure the thing is here and that's here. Oh, another thing is the very first day, the very first scene, the very first moments, I'm just in engineering. And what it is, it's it's fake, really. You have to pretend to push buttons and they light up and stuff, but it's just really a wall of nothing. So I'm like, I'm, you know, moving around and shoot and touching stuff and they they stop everything. And there's a, there's a conversation. I, I, they t- Star Trek was intense on the set, even though the actors were nice, but it was a lot of drama. Uh, and they come to me and they usher me away to the wardrobe uh, wardrobe area. And I knew it, it wasn't me, that I didn't do something wrong. I mean, you're always thinking you're screwing up. I was an A cup at the time. So they made me a B cup. And then they went, took me out there and then they made me a C cup and they took me out there to look uh, on camera. And then they made me a D cup. My boobs, you can't really see it. My boobs were like out here. You couldn't really see in the outfit because it smashed it down. But they made me this gigantic D cup just so it would read that I had boobs in the outfit. (laughs) So I found that pretty fascinating. There was more direction and time by far given to hair makeup and wardrobe than any direction for acting or no one ever given me acting direction at all it was just thank you that was great cut next it's pretty hysterical i can tell you that you're not the only person to have talked about having boob issues on star trek actually so you're not alone in that yeah oh good that's good to know but on that same token, I'm actually curious, you know, we've talked to a lot of uh, actors, actresses who are on the Trek shows in the Starfleet uniforms, and they've had differing opinions on how it felt to actually wear the uniform. Uh, and granted, in your case here, you had to wear that with chest prosthetics, essentially. But uh, what do you remember about wearing the uniform? Was it comfortable for you? Was it distracting? Did it get in the way at all? Um, well, the fitting took an entire week. They, I mean, they pin and they make it exactly to your specifications. And it's um, it's kind of this elasticy material. Um, so it's a little stretchy. It wasn't that uncomfortable, but so that it wouldn't have even one wrinkle in it. it there was stirrups underneath 
uh, the pants that always had to be pushed down and kind of under your shoes or under your socks so that you always had these really streamlined. Um, that's one thing I remember. But other, other than that, you know, when I go back and I look at those episodes or once in a while, I'll see a clip. I was like, you know, I just all I can think of is how big they tried to make my boobs look and it didn't even read. It looked like I was just, you know, normal. I did want to ask you a little bit more about uh, Patrick Stewart also, because your scene, your first scene with him is you're spilling hot cocoa all over him. And I imagine just in the first place, being in a room with Patrick Stewart is intimidating. Having to now spill hot cocoa on him is probably even more frightening for a young actor. Uh, what can you tell us about doing that scene with Patrick Stewart? And again, just you got to spill stuff on him. That's crazy. That sounds well, like a horrible thing to do. It sounds like a nightmare to me personally in real life. Right. There was only one rehearsal in which I didn't spill anything. And then they, they could only do two takes. So they had two cameras rolling on each two takes because they only had two changes of outfit from Patrick. Or maybe that's all Patrick wanted to do. Um, so I had to nail it. So which helped because I had to be nervous in the scene. You know, my captain, your captain, my ship, your ship. I had to be kind of, you know, bumbling like that. So um, we we just did it twice. Um, and he didn't want to talk to me. He, he didn't want to be friends with me. He wanted to keep that kind of intimidating aspect so that the, the roles would look right when we shot it. He didn't mean to want to be my friend off camera. And then, you know, be intimidating on camera. So it was very fun. It was, it was really great. After that, years later, I saw him in a play and I went backstage afterwards. And he was just the sweetest guy. He was just completely not that. He has such a sense of humor about himself. I wish he'd host Saturday Night Live because he's hysterical. So it was really fun working with him. So aside from Pat, Sir Patrick Stewart and everybody else we mentioned, you also were in an episode of Whoopi Goldberg. And I don't know if you got to actually interact with her at all, but uh, did you actually get to chat with her or spend some time with her offset? Yes. Oh my gosh. She was so nice again. And I got, um, those were the days of the Polaroid. So I got a Polaroid picture of her and I in our outfits together that I gave to my boyfriend at the time when he was traveling to remember me by, and then he went and lost it. It was like, that was my only piece of memorabilia. I broke up with him after that, so don't worry. Um, but yeah, she was super, super sweet. Um, gosh, the the environment after, you know, action and cut was just so wonderful. I mean, they, they'd all worked together for a long time. They were all friends. Everybody was just very familiar and kind. There was no ego tripping. Uh, it was really, a really, 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 really a delight. Now, I've gone to some of the Star Trek conventions to do signings and stuff. And none of them go, which is unfortunate because they're too, they don't, maybe they're too big or once in a while they'll make an appearance um, on stage and do those round tables on the stage and stuff. Um, but there's, they're in real life. Gosh, my gosh, there's not a complaint, not a one of them. Um, the thing about dad, I was going to say is we were eating lunch one time, just outside of the set, just like si sitting on one of the streets on, on the Paramount lot. and you can't really realize because it didn't shoot well. The color of gold that they cover him in is so gold and so bright and gorgeous. And it didn't quite translate as well because they didn't have HD or high def back then. Um, but he had to live in that gold all the time. I mean, you know, it's not, he came in at five in the morning, got covered in gold and then, you know, wrapped 12 hours later, you know, still covered in gold. It's not like he could take it on and off. And he didn't mind it at all, you know. 
So the first episode that you were in, again, Q Who, uh, for Trekkies out there, we all know that as the debut of the Borg. And that's pretty much the biggest threat in Star Trek history at that time. And they're still pretty darn scary. Um, did you ever see them on set? For, again, this is probably the first time you probably have seen them. Did you ever see them at all when you were there filming? No, I just, but I did see their, their prosthetics and their heads and all, all of that stuff in the makeup room. I mean, it's no surprise uh, Michael Westmore was asked to do, you know, Star Trek because he, he was such a specialist at that kind of stuff. Um, so no, I didn't really, you know, have any interactions with the Borgs. Sorry. Except seeing them, you know, at the cafeteria. <laughs> you know? That's gotta be a weird thing to see a bunch of Borg eating soup and salad, right? Yeah. Along with all the Mission Impossible people. It was, you know, whenever you're working on a big set like that or big sound stage like MGM or, or Paramount, you know, the mixture of people, you've got a cowboy next to a little person, next to a nun, next to, you know, a Borg, you know, next to gangster you know and you're all in in the line to get soup it's kind of funny so aside from the appearances on next gen which were sadly only two episodes uh your character does continue on in books and other media Uh, are you familiar with what uh, sonia gomez has done since her tv appearances you know no actually no i i I didn't didn't really follow up um just because my my little heart was broken i just like I, i felt sad that i wasn't continued so i didn't kind of pursue it outside of uh, the professional aspect of it. What happens to her? Well, she does a heck of a lot more stuff. I haven't read all the books myself, but I know that she does rise up in the ranks. Uh, there's basically a whole book series more or less devoted to her and her team. Uh, so, so she actually did pretty well for herself. So it's unfortunate again, that uh, Sonia Gomez didn't keep up in the next gen show. And uh, I'm kind of curious, you know, we, we know what was supposed to happen in theory, but what would you have liked to have happened to Sonia Gomez? Probably what what would have ever been in that on those books in the canon because uh, I know that the producers and Gene Roddenberry was on the set a lot and I actually got a Polaroid with him that I still have so he was alive and he really wanted to hold true to to the written word and so a lot of the scripts were very very close to what what was written in all of the books in the canon. Um, personally, what I would have liked to do is come back that following season which would have started up in august or september of that following year and you know learned my craft as an ensign and and maybe excel like they had written about it and gosh to become a love interest of jordy to have those kinds of scenes to be able to have worked with jordy more would have just been a a dream come true i mean honestly i would do it for free uh but you know say lovey yeah, working with LeVar Burton, I know, must be really great. Uh, I do feel like as far as Ensign Gomez goes, she probably dodged a bullet because Jordy LaForge was kind of a creep with the ladies, it seemed like, later on. So uh, he was a little bit, uh, yeah, not, not too great with the ladies. Oh, I didn't know that. In the series? Yeah, he has uh, another love interest later on that's uh, actually a hologram in the beginning. It's uh, Dr. Leah Brahms. And at first we meet her, she's a hologram. And then the actual doctor, a few episodes later, comes and they actually meet in person. It's awkward. Uh, you know, Jordy's not the best with the ladies. Love it. That's hysterical. I mean, that man can play anything. Uh, he's got such a range. So I heard a story, and maybe you could help let us know if this is true or not. Now we're going to jump into Total Recall a little bit. But sure. I heard that uh, it was your appearance on Total Recall that also may have actually hindered your continuing in Star Trek Next Generation. Is there any truth to that? Oh, no, because they were. that was a couple of years later from what I recall. I mean, maybe that's true. I mean, honestly, 
I've just heard rumors. So yeah, I wanted to get to the bottom of that, but I know there's other things going on, obviously that you mentioned already with, uh, with the character. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not privy to that. I honestly, I'm not privy to that. I was also told that, that um, my role didn't continue on because my agents didn't accept a deal and they never told me about it. I was told that a couple of times that, that I, I was offered, um, which all of that is just heartbreaking. You know, I mean, for someone who was young, like I was, and who was really dedicated to the craft of acting and just loved it and worked very, very, very hard and would have done anything they asked me to do to, to find out something like, you know, it was my agents who didn't accept a deal that I didn't even know about. You know, maybe they would, were offering SAG minimum. I would have taken it. Are you kidding? But that I, I still don't have any evidence. The thing is, Star Trek, those episodes were shot in 85 or 86. And Total Recall was 87, 88. So I don't know uh, if they influenced each other. Um, but um, I got the role um, kind of side unseen because Jan DeBont was the, the DP, the cinematographer on Clan of the Cave Bear. And I guess he remembered me. They needed somebody um, who knew how to wear prosthetics and didn't complain about it. <laughs> Um, so I was the only one to audition and I, I just went in and, and met with him and chatted with him. And he told me what it was that I have to go, um, to Azusa and work with a very Rick Baker, very famous, um, you know, guy who makes horror stuff like, you know, monsters and stuff and work it out. Originally she was to have four boobs. Yeah. We should mention and- for, for folks who don't know, cause there's probably some people who might not recognize you just yet. And they're hearing four boobs. OMG. Oh. But Oh, I was the, um, my name was Mary in, in Total Recall. If you went to get popcorn, you'd miss me. But I was a very, um, a role that you wouldn't forget. I was a three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars um, who opened up her shirt and should have said, got milk. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even remember the lines. There were so few. But uh, originally, um, there was probably two to three weeks of, of creating that prosthetic piece. And it started at my neck and they blended in with my neck and it went all the way down below my belly. It was an entire, so that it looked like natural boobs when I would open up my shirt. But originally there were four boobs and I looked like a cow. It was like one, two, three, four. It was like, you know, it was too mammalian. This way too mammalian, you know, they it's a good word. I, I need to use mammalian in more sentences. I know. It makes me feel, it makes me feel like I'm smart. Um, yeah, it's like, it's just too much lactose going on. It was not right. It was just, it didn't, it didn't look sexy. I guess it was, I was supposed to be a mutant prostitute, but there had to be some sex appeal. Like if two boobs are good, three boobs are better. That's, I guess, you know, so they stuck one in the middle. And one of the things I'm always asked is where the, you know, were any of them yours, you know? And I was like, no. And, the, you know, I always say, yeah, um, the, the middle one was mine. <laughs> the, the other two were in a jar in formaldehyde on my desk. But no, none of the boobs were mine. They were all three prosthetics. Um, and they had several of them painted perfectly. And it was that spongy stuff they make it of. It almost feels like skin. And it, it takes about... It started um, initially to be like eight hours in the makeup chair and they put you in like a barber chair and lean you back. And then it got down to about five and a half hours, five hours. I just got faster and faster at it. 
because they'd have to glue it on and then make it look like there's not a seam and blend in all the makeup and then put it all in. And, you know, we shot in Mexico City and I had a walk. Those were Walkman days. I would I was the first one on the set, 5 a.m., you know, plug in the Walkman, go to sleep and just let them work at me. And that was weird. Now, here's here's a little something. So the first day on the set, it was just a week of shooting. I just like five, six days. Um, uh, I meet, um, I, I, I arrive on the set with my outfit on and I'm a prostitute as usual. I mean, if I, I probably played 10 prostitutes in my career. Uh, um, yeah, it was ethnic, you know, was in, you know, ethnic was not in to play leads, unfortunately, but I already went through that. So I'm standing on the set watching Jan de Bont direct Arnold. And Arnold was like a robot. He took, he imitated everything Jan told him to do. Jan would give him a line reading, meaning a way to say a line, like, hello, how are you, how are you today? And Arnold Schwarzenegger would go, hello, how are you today? He would do it exactly the way he was asked. And I was like, wow. Uh, you know, as an actor, you're kind of not used to that. You're you're used to actors doing many takes, trying it many ways, you know, being artsy, you know. But Arnold was all business. And I liked that. He was super, super professional. So then when they were lighting our scene at the at the bar, you know, I'm sitting across from him. I looked into his eyes and we didn't talk much. Um, he didn't talk much to me. Um he is kind of a big guy and he was very buff at the time. Right. He still is in his, you know, all in old days. And one thing that I really noticed that I'll never, ever, 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 ever forget. I'm looking at his eyes and his pupils were the size of a tiny little pin. And I was like, that is so weird. I just kept looking at his, you know, he's got beautiful blue eyes, but the pupils were not normal pupils. They were tiny. And later I find out that that's like a result of steroids. I didn't know that. The other thing is because you, you know, the shoot was so long, they took out, they took over this entire soundstage in in Mexico city. And there were three units running the whole time, the A unit, B unit, and C unit, the B and C unit were running, you know, all of the stunts and all of the special effects. And one of the buildings was completely taken over for him. On the bottom floor was this huge gym where he'd work out with with a stunt coordinator and other people. And then the upstairs was where he lived. And Maria Shriver, his wife, was there at the time for the first couple of days. And I got to see her, but she left. And one of the, I don't know if it was, yeah, I was a stuntman. I'm walking to the set for maybe it was the first or second day. And he goes, be careful of Arnold, you know, you know, anything 14 and a half years and, you know, and younger is, you know, be careful. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, I always remember because he said 14 and a half years. Basically, Arnold was, he was, uh, you know, he was a naughty boy at the time. And when he ran for governor, he actually admitted it. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it was par for the course, you know, cocaine and women and and. What I thought helped getting him elected is he didn't deny it. He didn't try to hide it like a Bill Clinton. He just went, yeah, you know, was boys. I was a bad boy. Boys will be boys. And he was. He was a bit of a pickup artist. And there was tons and tons of Mexican girls who were extra, extras, you know, from Mexico living there who they glamorized to be beautiful in, in a lot of the bar scenes like that. And never hit on me, but 
um, I was told to beware. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a inside scoop. So I'd heard some horror stories about you filming there as well, aside from the Arnold stuff. Cause I did actually read the article you wrote uh, about your time on that set. In fact, um, but I heard some other stories. Maybe we could spend a little bit of time on that. Uh, I heard you had a really rough day um, trying to find the best way to put it, but you had a rather explosive day on one of the sets on Total Recall. You know, it's, it's Mexico and it's Montezuma's revenge. And uh, I avoided getting, um, you know, Montezuma's revenge diarrhea for the entire time I was there. We were stayed at a beautiful five-star hotel. You don't open your mouth when you're in the shower. You only drink bottled water. You don't eat lettuce. You know, you eat things that are completely cooked. I lived on like candy bars and cigarettes in those days. But that morning, it was, it was the last day of shooting for me, the second to the last day of shooting, the big scene. And I'd ordered oatmeal with milk and I'd, you know, gotten in the makeup chair and got makeup on. And then around, that was around 5 a.m., around 11 a.m., I go to my, my trailer and I eat some of my oatmeal and too late. Whatever happened, whatever happened, how that oatmeal was made, or maybe it just went sour, bang. So I definitely had the runs. So these were all of my close-ups. It's the scene where, where Arnold and I are right there together, and I had to have the trots. So the minute they said cut, I would run off and explode, and then I'd come back and think, oh, gosh, it's over. And then I'd more, and I'm like, where's – I don't even eat that much. Where's – how come all so much is coming out of me? It was – terrible terrible it was something you don't wish but you know i'm a professional actor all right so here's another here's another um story um from total recall now jan de didn't show me a script i didn't you know i never saw a script until the day i got onto the set there weren't that many lines so it wasn't that big of a deal but what i kind of didn't register was that I was going to open my blouse and be naked and expose myself. Now, granted, it's a prosthetic. And granted, the blouse was kind of see-through anyway. But when I got to the set to do it, I felt, because I'm nuts, you know, I was 25. I felt like I was exposing myself. And I got, I got completely clammed up. I got so shy. And I, I, I ran up to Jan and I said, I can't do this. Is there any way, you know... I can just, you know, modify that and just a little peek. And he, he said, no, he said, I'll, pro I promise you a role in my next film. If you do this, he said that I, I got so into my character because of all the time wearing those prosthetic, I kind of, st you started to own those boobs. I started to feel like they were part of my body. And when Jan insisted that I open my blouse and do it, he promised me that if I do it, cause I was I begged him Begged him and begged him not to make me do that. To maybe just do like this or like this or something, but not open it up all the way and have my nipples hanging out and the whole thing. It didn't register in my tiny little mind that that was always the plan. You know, I was just so excited to get another role to, you know, act. And he said, if you do it, I'm, I'll trust me, calm down, breathe. He was really cool. You know, he had this accent. Just relax. I'm going to give you a role in my next film. He kind of whispered in my ear, if you just kind of just do this, it's not that big of a deal. And I was like, okay. <laughs> he never did give me another role. Um, but I, kn I know where he lives. So I might one day go knock on the door and go, 
he's still in the business. I know I'm a grandma now, but, uh, you know, anything. So I did. I ended up having to do it. And you, 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 you might not even see it, even if you look up very close. I have tears in my eyes. Because I, I got embarrassed. I'm a hooker. I'm a mutant hooker. I should know that the way a mutant hooker on Mars in a bar makes money is by opening up her blouse and showing her wares. That's what hookers on Mars do. And it didn't register. I just, I got shy. I opened up my blouse. And, you know, if you look up close, I mean, I was like tearing up because I was just so embarrassed, you know. So that was that. Um, I did it anyway. Um, the other really fun thing that I got to do a couple times afterward is getting shot. And when you get shot, they squib you up, which means they put these little packets of blood all over you. What was in my mouth hidden that, you know, when you get shot in the back, I had to bite it and open up my mouth and blood spew out. So it was good to be shot in the back. And, um, someone has like a remote control offset that explodes these squibs all at once. These little packets, plastic packets of blood. So you see blood all, you know, spewing out. And it was one of those scenes, just like the one with Picard with the hot chocolate. We could only do it twice because they'd have to take that whole prosthetic piece off and put another one on, uh, you know, with the squibs and, and ruin it and explode it. I don't recall what ended up showing on the screen, but it, that was so fun. The funnest part was practicing getting shot and going, ah. And then they had mattresses and you just go, oh, and fall onto the mattress, you know, off camera. And I was like, this is so fun. I just loved it. Practicing getting shot over and over again and working with the special effects and stunt guys. You know, it was really nice. And this is more than once I had to deal with guns and stuff is they show you that they're real blanks. They open it up. They show you that they're blanks, but to still be careful because there's a push. You can actually get hurt if, if a gun is too close to you, that, that impact on the blank, you know, it's like a BB. So, um, you know, I didn't get hurt or anything like that, but it was, it was fun. I don't know. <laughs> it's fun to get shot. It was fun to get shot. <laughs> it, it was not the day I had diarrhea. So they did a lot of scenes where I'm laying face down, you know, and, and I, basically you're an extra that day where you're just dead, you know, facing down on a mattress, but I had to be there facing down and, it wasn't the mattress at the time. It was the actual floor. Um, so thank God I didn't have the squirms then. <laughs> so a few years later, after all of this, you decided to leave Hollywood and you kind of changed the trajectory of your career and you went to journalism. Uh, so why did you make that career shift? But yeah, I ended up uh, leaving acting, but acting kind of left me. After I got nominated for that Emmy, I got the chance to audition for everything under the sun, bigger roles and stuff. But I didn't book even one of them. I didn't work for an entire year. And the more I auditioned and got close and the more I got re quote unquote rejected, the more I just, my mindset couldn't handle it. I was young and not really balanced, I guess. I just took it to heart. You know, I kept trying to fix what was wrong. I was like, why wasn't I booking these? You know, ethnic was not in again at the time. It was, I was addi always auditioning against white girls and white girls were always getting it. it J-Lo hadn't come along yet. You know, it just, it, she helped break the barrier in living color so that we started to see lead actresses um, who were ethnic work in bigger roles. Um, but at, at the time I was working through the eighties and early, very, very early nineties, that wouldn't happen. So after a year of not booking one thing after this Emmy nomination, my agents dropped me 
And I was like, maybe I should go to college. <laughs> you know, I was like 30. And it was a fun run. Acting was a fun run. I, you know, was in the business from 18 to 30. And so I started to go to community college and I really liked essay writing. And before you know it, I started to evolve my talents into writing. And what I liked about being a journalist and I became a news reporter, I became an undercover investigative reporter, which means you're not going to see my byline on a lot of things because um, it was more like investigating and more like a spy if I was checking into the hotel of the person I was following, I couldn't be traced back, you know, because my name was not known. I am. So it was kind of, that's how I operated to get bigger and bigger stories. And that was the way to make a lot more money. I made a whole lot more money uh, as an undercover investigative journalist than I did as an actor. So I did that for quite a while. Um, Broke a lot of big stories. Um, Again, you probably wouldn't see my name a lot unless I was working for People Magazine, the Miami Herald, or the Daily Mail. Um, then I would I would be forced to take a byline. I'd have to put my name on those stories. But I could get more information and write bigger and better stories if my name wasn't attached, if I was kind of hidden. Then I could sneak around and get closer to my subject and get more information on them. Anyway, those were the days um, I traveled, you know, to every state in the United States and kind of all around the world. Um, I ended my career right after I broke the Bill Cosby rape scandal in around September, October of what was it? 2014. I did that completely on my own. Um, Hannibal Barres, um was doing a summer tour. Um, he's a comic and he, you know, he said, you know, the, the biggest comic hypocrite is Bill Cosby. Google him and rape when you get home. And I picked up on that and realized this guy had settled a couple of big lawsuits, one in the 90s, you know, one in 2006. And I started to gather names of women who were testifying against them. And all of this was covered up, kind of, it just wasn't in the mainstream. And I started to interview Barbara Bowman and some of the other women on record, on camera, you know, on print, who lived through the horror with me. I just wrote about the horror, hor- horrible examples of what they went through with these molestations and, and being drugged and raped over and over and over again. There were so many women that I knew it wasn't a conspiracy against Bill Cosby. Many of them were grandmothers and you know, all kinds of races and ethnicities and all around the country. So it wasn't like they all gathered up in Dallas and go, let's get Bill. You know, it wasn't a plot against him. It was a real deal. He started in the 70s and, you know, ended it in 2013, pretty much. So, I mean, he's in jail now. Um, I don't, you know, have anything personal against him, but I broke that Bill Cosby scandal and a couple of other big ones. And then after that, you know, I made enough money to pay off my house here in, in, you know, in Venice Beach, California. And I was like, why not not work? <laughs> why not, you know, just invest my money? And, and you know, I've been, I've been in the mainstream of working, you know, eight to 16 hours a day since I was a teenager. So, that, you know, I ended up transitioning out of um, journalism into retirement 
where I can ride my motorcycle and read books and take naps. Yeah, I did want to follow up on you breaking the story about Bill Cosby, because that was such a huge, huge thing in the news. Uh, and, you know, clearly this is one of those things that's helped this current wave of feminism that we have right now. Uh, it kind of led into the Me Too movement, the speaking out movement, all those kinds I... of things. Um, but just, you know, let's just take it back a few steps to when that story first broke. And, you know, you said you're an investigative journalist, so oftentimes your name is hidden. In this case, your name is right out there in bold. Uh, so just those first few months when the story came out, what was it like for you as that reporter to just have your name there and have, you know, this giant story attached to it? Uh, well, there's always blowback, you know. Um, there's all, There were a lot of people, close friends of mine, you know, who are African-American who thought it was a conspiracy to hurt Bill Cosby. It was a dead end because they, there wasn't there wasn't logic there for me to go. This woman didn't even know this woman. They live on opposite sides of the country, you know, opposite experiences other than the similar experience of being drugged, not knowing what happened, waking up and smelling semen and cigar smoke and Bill Cosby's cologne all over them, you know, <laughs> to be quite frank. So it's, it was tough. I got a lot of blowback. Um, I went on Dr. Phil. He gave me an entire segment on my own, which was really cool. Um, and we really got to break down the timeline. And there's just so many women from so many walks of life, from Playboy Bunnies all the way to, to fans who saw him in a comedy show in Las Vegas, who he said, you know, I'll sign an autograph and take pictures right in front of their boyfriends and then said, Here's the key to my room. Come up and get the signed autograph later in a couple of hours. And they'd come up and he wouldn't be there. They'd open the, the, the door to his suite and there would be wine and food. And, you know, there'd be a call, a ring at in the hotel and they'd pick up and it would be Bill and said, you know, I'm, I'm delayed. I'm, I'm saying hi to some fans. Go ahead and have a glass of wine and have a bite and I'll be right there. And this happened so many times to so many different people who did not know each other. And by the, you know, by the time they woke up, it was the next day. They're either naked in bed or half dressed. Bill's nowhere to be found. But it's like something is dripping out of their lady parts. <laughs> it's, it was pretty horrifying and it was pretty graphic. And I was very lucky to have women confide in me and open up to me and trust me enough to expose themselves and know that I'm going to write the words exactly the way they want them. I'm not going to spin it. I'm, I'm going to do it with as much respect and dignity as I can give to such a horrific experience. But by, you know, by you, by, I was telling by you coming forward, this is, this really helps. And it did blow up into the whole Me Too movement. And more and more folks got exposed, Harvey Weinstein and Epstein. And, it, you know, that was the beginning of it. Um, and it was it was a tough road uh, for me personally, too. Um, I happen to have been a survivor of some of those experiences. So I think that's why I had a, a special skill set to go in and make a cold call to people, to a woman and say, hey, this is who I am. It happened to me. I know it happened to you. Let Would you be willing to talk about it? And I'll write it with you. We'll edit the story with you. We'll do it exactly the way you want it, with your words. Um, because the experience, it's time. 
And so I was lucky enough to do a dozen of those kinds of stories. Um, and it got, it, it elevated me for a quick second, but that really wasn't the goal. I did a lot of TV stuff around the world, segments on news stories and stuff, talking about it. Um, um, that's about that. <laughs> that's about all I have to say on that. I think it's quite a lot. I mean, it's, it's a heck of a thing that happened. Uh, that's to put it mildly, I guess, but you know, I, I kind of wondered looking at some of the things in your career, like we didn't even discuss actually uh, on Baywatch, how you, you'd mentioned that you had to basically be stripped naked to be given a fake tan. Uh, I was curious, you know, looking at like a lot of the experiences you had in Hollywood, having to be a, a prostitute all the time, having to yeah. show off three boobs and total recall, just all these kind of very demeaning roles. Uh, how much do you think that played into your decision to kind of go towards this aspect of the investigative journalism and to start oh. talking about that? Funny God, I never, that was, that's an amazing question, Matthew. Oh, thank wow. You. <laughs> you know, I never really put those together, but um, I mean, there's the level of, because of the way I looked and it truly was the way I looked. Um, I was exploited in the sense where I wasn't going to get a, a, a meaningful role. They were always maids and prostitutes and hookers and drug addicts and people who were of color. And that was it. That was all that my agents could get me up for. Um, and my peers as well. Some of my peers went on to, to do, you know, lots of much, much better things. They hung in there and broke the color line. The color line got broken now where it's very uh, multiracial and multidimensional on, on camera now. But it wasn't back then. When I started to learn that I had a skill for writing, it was such a relief. It was like I could breathe because it didn't, didn't matter how I looked or how I sounded or how I smelled or anything about me personally, it mattered the, it mattered what, you know, the written word, it mattered what the word was on the page. And if I could do that and honor that correctly. So I wasn't into fiction. I was into nonfiction. And I did a lot of, I worked at the Miami Herald for years. I worked at People Magazine. I was undercover at the Inquirer and all of them, the star, all of those, um, I didn't take a byline because I didn't want anyone to know I was doing that kind of work and I was making shitloads of money. Um, and I really learned how to be an investigative reporter because you, you've got a lot of data banks at your disposal. You, you know, people's phone numbers where they live. You can get very, very close to a celebrity without them knowing it, especially because my name wasn't attached to anything. I mean, I followed Tom Cruise forever. Um, Britney Spears. I broke tons and tons and tons of stories on Britney Spears. I was, the clearinghouse for everything Britney Spears when she was going through her meltdown, 2002, you know, seven to 2009. I was in her house a couple of times. Um, I would be able to get really, I was a celebrity journalist, basically. Um, very, very close to my, my subjects um, because my name was not, was hidden. So if, if someone would see my name on a roster at a hotel, they wouldn't put it together that I was a reporter and then I'd have to get kicked out. Or if I was at the Chateau Marmont, no one knew they wouldn't attach me to who I was as a journalist. So I could stay inches away from Lindsay Lohan and watch her do blow, you know, things like this. Um, I got to see a lot. I got to report a lot. Um, it was a great way to make a whole lot of money fast. Um, it, you know, in a weird way, I was exploited as an actor, and I guess I exploited a public figures to make a living now, you know, it bought me my house. Um, I, I, you know, people say I'm not proud of what I did. I don't, I didn't do anything sleazy, really. I didn't do anything illegal. Re not really. <laughs> a little bit of gray there. A little 
little touch gray, um, but nothing that would get me handcuffed or anything like that. Um, you know, I still had my ethics and morals. The thing is, here's something important, I guess, is if you're going to be a public figure, if you're going to be uh, a celebrity, an actor, and you've got a soapbox and you've got a voice and you're making millions and millions of dollars to play cowboys and Indians, you can't pretend, you know, reporters are not going to follow you. You can't pretend that paparazzi aren't going to follow you. All those pictures you see in magazines of celebrities, they are they 100% know that there's 10, 15 guys around them at all times. 100% of their lives, especially if they're A-listers like a Brad Pitt, a Jennifer Aniston, and Angelina Jolie, you know, people like that, um, uh, Justin Bieber. And they act natural, but often they're calling the press to let them know that, hey, I'm going to be at the park playing with my kid. You know, we'll sue you if you, give, if you print bad shots. So just print good shots. And they have working relationships with the paparazzi photo agencies. And they have working relationships with the celebrity magazines that some people don't know, but I'm not in the business anymore and no one can sue me for anything I'm saying. But there's no, there's no wool pulled over anybody's eyes. If you're a public figure, you, you're fair game. You're fair game to be reported on, you know, good, bad, and ugly. If you're making that level of money as a public figure, now their kids to me are off limits, you know, um, their love interests, um, even though there's often interest in their partners or their husbands or wives, you know, I, I try not to pursue them because they're not public figures. But if you're going to put yourself out there, you're you're fair game. It's just it's just part of the uh, contract that you sign when you want to be that person and make that kind of money and and have that kind of airtime and influence on people, you know. I mean, this is such a big story that happened. It really did just change so much in this country. Uh, I mean, do, do, you, do you ever wonder if like, this is your way of just kind of trying to protect others from what happened to you happening to them? Oh, totally. I mean, that, and that's what I would say to the women who, who had been raped by Bill Cosby and other people. Um, there were a couple of others. Um, that this kind of will help stop that karmic train as it was. You know, so that it may not happen again. It might end this this habitual. And lo and behold, look what's happening now. Some some guys have been falsely accused, and I feel really bad about that because it gives the Me Too movement a bad name. But there are a whole lot of people who um, got busted. Like I'm massive fan of Louis C.K. He got busted. He came out and went, "I did it. I did it." I'm wrong. I'm going to take a couple of years off. I'm going to repent anything I can do to fix this. This is true. And he was one of the first people to do that. And so was um, uh, Al Franken. And he had to step down from a really long, wonderful career as a senator. But they copped to it. They said, my bad, kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger doing that before he was elected governor. You know, it's always the cover up that's so much worse than the crime. But what I mean, nowadays, it's it's. Women don't go into hotels and private hotel rooms to do auditions. You know, a lot of the bad guys are out of the business now. The casting couch, that casting couch doesn't exist anymore. You know, if if you're in a wardrobe fitting, it's, it's, you know, there's, they do it. So it's all above board and you can't get sued. You know, there's women with you just watching. I mean, it's, it's everything has changed now for the better. I mean, I'm not solely responsible by any means, but it was so cool to have that first little rock that started to roll that now is snowballed into 
a massive change in the industry to make it a little bit more decent for women and men. You know, I have a lot of male friends that were hit on, you know, harder, even, even more bluntly. And that kind of stuff just isn't fair because it's someone taking their powerful position and you're going to get a job out of it. If you fulfill their sexual needs, that's, that's so corrupt. So I'm glad it's out there and it's passing. I'm glad we got to talk about this here. I know folks listening who came, if they're thinking they were only going to hear Star Trek, clearly they haven't listened to Trek Untold before. Uh, but I think this is a pretty important topic. And uh, you know, just thank you for being so brave to actually cover this and to break that story. But uh, I guess on to a little more of a positive, happier note as well as we close out this episode today. You're right now involved in a charity organization called Drive-By Do-Gooders. And I wanted to talk to you about that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Drive-By Do-Gooders is? I came up with this little charity, um, you know, like Drive-By Shooting, you know, um, I, I live in LA and, um, you know, you can't throw a rock and, and not see a homeless person that could look like your brother, your mother, your relative, your grandfather. It's, it's in, in LA County proper. I think we have this year, what, 58,000 adult homeless people that are unsheltered. And I work uh, specifically in Skid Row on the outskirts of Skid Row that, that have 12,000 adults who live in 20 square blocks. And it's a permanent homeless encampment in downtown LA. And I've, I've always been kind of a do-gooder. Like I'm the one at a party who's shy, believe it or not. I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like I'm shy now, but you know, I'm the one who's cleaning up in the kitchen or trying to help. And um, I've always been um, service and charity oriented. So drive-by do-gooders just uh, kind of evolved organically and naturally where just it would be just me and I would be driving to an audition or driving to work or just driving anywhere. And I'd have a bottle of water and extra protein bar in my passenger seat. And if I had it, I'd give it. And if I didn't, I did, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't put too much pressure on myself. You know, I didn't make an illegal U-turn sometimes to help a person, but if it was meant to be, I'd hand it out. And I just noticed I was doing that more and more. And then one day I was asked to help with a buffet on a street in Skid Row called Gladys street and at the end of the buffet all these people are high-fiving themselves about how wonderful they were helping the poor and I was like it's that's not the way to do it you just do it from your heart and you don't really talk about it you know you don't make t-shirts about it and rave you know wave banners about how good you are it's just something you should do like recycling or taxes there are people who are less fortunate than than we are you know and everybody deserves water you know and everybody deserves a little bit of protein to think help them think straight and everybody deserves you know, wipes. Like I make these baby wipes infused with rubbing alcohol and I put them in little baggies called baths in a bag because there's a very, very few toilets out in Skid Row, not one shower and believe it or not, not one single water fountain. So after years and years of, of, of evolving this, I became a little nonprofit in 2015 and I called myself drive-by do-gooders and I I corral the teenage boys on my block to go out with me and we put, you know, 300 bottles of water in my old SUV and we make 200 baggies of baby wipes and socks or tarps. Or now these days we we bring out masks and gloves and we roll down the outskirts of Skid Row where the elderly and disabled are because we can only feed a few hundred people or help a few hundred people. And there's 12,000 out there. And we kind of roll down the street like an ice cream truck going, you know, water, string cheese, cleaning wipes, masks, gloves, socks, whatever we have. And our homeless friends who we've known for years and years come out of their tents and we just hand the stuff out from our cars. 
It's super safe. It's not like straight out of Compton. I've never seen a weapon down there. I've seen some fights. I've seen a whole lot of inebriated people, a lot of, you know, drugs. I've seen a lot of prostitution, which is kind of the underground economy that that the police kind of let operate because it's kind of how people make money. Um, but no one, there's, you know, no one's harming each other. They, they like to not draw attention to themselves. Each street is like their own tribe. You know, your wall-to-wall tarps and tents. And these people have settled in. It's the permanent homeless encampment, you know, right here, seven miles away from million-dollar homes, multi-million-dollar homes. We've got abject third-world poverty, people who don't have a bathroom. You know what You know their bathroom is? A bucket. They have those Home Depot buckets behind their tents where they squat and do their business. So, you know, one thing that no charity that I know of does is bring out these body wipes and they go crazy for them because it cleans themselves. It cleans them, their tents. It washes their body. And especially, you know, in this time of COVID, you know, it might help sanitize some stuff because we use 75% alcohol in these baby wipes. And I, I don't know. It's so enjoyable. I, I rarely talk about it. It's just something I do. I collect four bucks a month from my friends and it's enough to kind of fuel the SUV and go to Costco and get all the water and stuff like this. And, you know, as much as I don't want to do it sometimes, I do it every week because by the time I've rolled out there and I've gone down my first block, the thank yous and the bless yous and, you know, what you get back just feels 10 times more than what you give. You know, these people are so grateful and there's so, so little out there and I can't really solve the homeless problem, but you know, I kind of can fill in the gaps where other service providers leave off, you know, on, on Sundays, some religious institutions come out and they do buffets or they'll hand out blankets or stuff along with Bibles and stuff, but I've got like no agenda. It's just pure giving and there's no overhead. It's just me and cute teenage boys who go to Venice high who just pack up the car, roll out there. And by the time we've come home to the cushy, you know, green tree-lined suburbs, it's like, wow. You know, we really feel that we made a little bit of a difference. And the, the fact that we've gone out there every single week since 2013, you know, it, it's we're so consistent. You know, we were a consistent presence out there. And we really get to know these folks. And each person has a different story. So if you really can't, a stereotype homelessness. It's not, oh, they're all drug addicts or, or they're all just want to live off the public dime. I mean, it's it's so complicated. My uh, little brother, who's given me permission to talk about him, was homeless due to uh, a meth addiction and he lived on Venice Beach and he was mugged and rolled over and beaten up and he became very sick and he was out there for a long, long time. You know, and then one day I just finished doing a story about Drew Barrymore's half-sister who killed herself. She had eight years of sobriety and she started to get on diet pills. And before I know it, she was all the way back on Oxycontin and she died in her car of an overdose. And I just finished talking to her mother and did a long interview. And I hung up the phone. I sent in my copy and I went, you know, my brother's right down the street in Venice. And I try to help him and he doesn't want help. Maybe I should just give it one last try. 
I had to. So I roll out there. I double park in an alley and I tell the guy, please watch my car. I'm going to save my brother. <laughs> and I went out there. and I just kind of prayed, you know, Venice Beach is big. So I just hit Brooks and the sand and I went, please guide me. Where is he? And I swear to you, this is true, Matthew. It was like a movie. I turn and I see this mound and I see these two palm trees, you know, on the beach. And my, I see someone. It was my brother. I see the stat, this like figure of my brother, like a like a shadow of my brother, you know, just a thinner, older, grayer. And I scream out, Corey! And he, he turns. And I go, Corey, is that you? He goes, Licia. And I was like, something out of the friggin' movies. I, we just start like running towards each other. And I hugged him and I held him and he was ready to come. He was ready. You know, I pull up my car, and by the time I got him into a rehab, he was already using three-syllable words. He's now recovered seven years, of completely clean and sober. He's got a full-time job. He's a member of society. He's amazingly good-looking. He's a really good musician. You know, I didn't necessarily save my brother, but, you know, sometimes ten fingers reach out to try to help somebody pull them out of homelessness, and they just need to take one finger and grab onto it and come, come out of that situation. And if we can do anything like that with drive-by do-gooders, just giving out water and wipes and masks and tarps, you know, we want to be able to do that. You know, it's it's good to be, you know, I'm blessed, man. I've got a house. I've got dogs. I've got motorcycles. I've got friends. I've got my health. You know, I live in beautiful L.A. Um, you know, to give back just that little much feels like nothing. You know, I, I feel like I should give so much more back. I don't know if this inspires anybody, but just put a bottle of water in your passenger seat or protein bar and don't be afraid. You know, it, there's there's this stigma about homeless people. Just pull up, roll down the window and go, hey, you want this protein bar? Or you want this ball of socks? It's used, but it's clean. And you'll be, you won't believe it. They'll always say yes. And they'll always thank you. And you'll walk away going, I just did a tiny little bit of good, man. Yeah, it's very altruistic, and I'm glad that you guys are doing this out there. You're making a difference for sure. You know, I'm, I'm here in New York, and we have similar uh, problems with finding housing for the homeless, but I went to L.A. last year, in fact, last summer, and I remember taking an Uber. Uh, I can't remember exactly what parts I was going through, but uh, I know it was from basically like one part of L.A. into another part that's closer, like where a lot of the bigger theaters are. And I just remember seeing just tent city, just so many tents, and I was like, this is just, you know, it's similar to what we have here, but so much worse in other ways. So thank you for making a difference. And, uh, you know, today for our listeners out there who want to support drive by do gooders, how can they do that? Oh my God. Thank you for saying that. All right. So it's drive by do gooders.org. You know, think of drive by and think of me a do gooder, all one word drive by do gooders.org. And you'll see a little video of us driving around doing our thing. And, you know, you can toss a few pennies in a month. And become a, you know, a, a regular subscriber. And we're always on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, drive-by do-gooders. It's easy to find. I post every week or twice a week, you know, um, of what we're doing out there. All the money goes directly into the bellies and the mouths of, the, of those who need it the most. I don't operate on any overhead. And I don't think there's any charity out there that's like that. I don't have stationery. I don't give myself a salary. I don't give myself a manicure. All I do is put gas in the car, you know, so every, every dime I get goes to buying stuff and giving it, buying stuff and giving it. So it's drivebydogooders.org. 
I'd love for you guys to be drive-by do-gooders. And you can start giving and doing this just wherever you are. You know, just put an extra sandwich, an extra socks, water, hand it out the car window. That's it. You're, you're, you're a drive-by do-gooder. And you won't believe how good it feels, you know. And it's so easy. So, Alicia, last question today for you. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Getting to talk to people like you, Matthew. Oh, you. That's true. Part of it is that the universe continues and continues with the fans and and people who know so much more about the canon of Star Trek and meeting people at the conventions and, and getting fan mail and signing, you know, stills from the stuff I've done. And I don't know, just it's something that keeps living on and on. And you know what? All of the gadgets and ta- technology and stuff that we have now is all invented by Gene Roddenberry and the people who continue to write this stuff way back, starting in the 60s. And now it's all true. I mean, it's crazy. You know, one, one thing about being part of that Star Trek universe is that it is a universe. You know, we just found out that there's a universe that has nine habitable planets on it. And we were already doing that in Star Trek in, in, and in all of its formats, you know, going to other planets with people on them. And now that can actually be 100% true, we found out. Anyway, that's what I love about it. It's really kind of the human aspect, you know, meeting people like you, Matthew. That's the nicest thing anyone said to me all day and probably the rest of my life. So thank you for that, Alicia. I appreciate it. And yeah, we appreciate you today so much for being on here to talk about Star Trek and talk about everything else you've been doing with yourself. Uh, you know, it, this has definitely been one of the most diverse interviews I think we've had on the show. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a little bit out of the normal from what we typically talk about, but I think you, you've covered some pretty important things and are absolutely worth spotlighting. So thank you for everything you did on screen. And of course with drive by do-gooders and your journalism career. I mean, yeah, I mean, I hope you're proud of yourself too. You've done a heck of a lot for the world. Oh, thank you so much. You know, give a ring anytime. Love to talk to you again. All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. And for folks out there who want to support Drive by Do-Gooders, of course, we're going to have a link in the show notes. So make sure you guys click on that. Uh, So yeah, Lisa, again, thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. So that was the end of the very first interview I did with Lisa. Now we're going to fast forward to just about a year later when it was revealed that Lisa was coming back into the Star Trek universe to reprise her role as Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold for this very special mini-sode of Trek Untold. We've got our first returning guest ever on the podcast, and that would be one of our most popular episodes, actually. It would be Licia Naff. Licia, how are you? Oh my goodness, most popular. I've never been popular before. I'm good, <laughs> thank you. Well, yeah, it's good to have you back. I mean, yeah, just just so folks who uh, are not familiar with the show or might be new to the show, uh, we interviewed Licia way back in like episode 20 or 20, some, somewhere in the 20s. And, uh, you know, we had an amazing chat. You were so amazing. You were so like honest and open and candid about everything. And people loved it. And they loved hearing your stories. They loved hearing your journey. Uh, and I got a lot of folks also who just said they were so inspired hearing what you went through and, and kind of just hearing that and having oh, yeah. some more things going on in their life. They felt very inspired by it. So, uh, you know, it was an amazing chat. And yeah, again, I want to thank you so much for giving me all that time in the first place. Matthew, of course, for you, anything. Oh, you, Licia. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, we're here today because you are back in Star Trek. OMG. I know. I know. Lower decks. Yeah. They so animated you... me and made my nose more Caucasian, which is good. <laughs> uh, for Ensign Sonia Gomez, I'm now a captain and I have my own ship called yeah, the Archimedes. I know. You are back now at Lower Deck season two finale. First, first contact. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a few other things, too, that we didn't get to chat about last time. But let's just jump right on into the Trek talk here. So, 
you have not been in really in acting in a long, long time. You basically retired from that, as we mentioned in our first podcast interview. Uh, yes. So I guess the first thing is tell us the process about how they got you hooked back in again. Oh, God, it was easy. <laughs> they just threw a bunch of money at me and I was like, hello. I live um, in Los Angeles near the beach and it's super expensive. So, you know, any little bits of money coming my way. I know that sounds so superficial, but I mean, part of being the multiverse, the Star Trek universe is just an honor. I'm hoping and praying that they'll write me back in for season three, but you know, you never know. Um, Yeah, they just made a call and said, do you want to? And I've always loved voiceover stuff. You know, when you go in and it's so fun, it's a completely different style of acting. So uh, right around this time last year, the pandemic was roaring. Um, they asked me if I could come in and I had to have all the protocol. The, um, ADR, the sound studio was empty except for the engineer who opened the door and he had, he was double masked and I was masked and I was, you know, put into one of those rooms where you loop and you have your microphone and everything. And about four or five TVs, giant TVs with all of the producers and the writers looking at me this way, zooming in. So we did it via zoom. And they gave me direction and I had a script. And then after I did everything, then they animated my character. So I wasn't sure if I was animated prior, but I wasn't. They do the voice first and then they animate you. And it takes a full year. I didn't know. Each episode takes like a year. A year later, we aired last week. It was great. It was so fun. Yeah, it was really cool. Very exciting seeing you back again because Sonia Gomez is a fan favorite. And I don't know if you've seen like the reaction on social media for seeing Captain Sonia Gomez has been enormous. Great. Oh, that's so good. Good, 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 good. See, I was actually wondering, you know, uh, since this was during the pandemic that you did this, if you had to go into the office to do this or if you're doing this at home, but it's cool to know that you actually were there in, in the place doing it in front of the producers. Yes. Uh, well, in front of the producers who were at virtual home producers. in their underwear, you know, zooming in. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. That's how we all do interviews these days, isn't it? Know, right. Still, I know year and a half later. Yeah. So obviously you've done ADR for other things you've worked on, but have you ever done specifically animated voiceover work before? Never. And boy, it just, it makes you kind of want to put a reel together and get an agent and go out and do the Simpsons. And just, it's so fun because you get to overact. You have to overact. They want you to, ah, he, well, haw, you know, to make it read. And it is an animated series. So it's, it's a little over the top. You wouldn't, kind of have those voices if you were doing a dramatic episode of any of the Star Treks. You know, they always try to play it real in the in the live action versions. But animated, you you get to go over the top. And they, they kept saying, do it more, more, more. And I'm like, wah, ee, ha. And they're like, great, more, wah. <laughs> it was just a blast. It was really fun. Yeah, I hear that a lot with voiceover actors where they have to kind of really do that. They have to really kind of go vaudeville, if you will. You got to really go big. Uh, and if you're not protecting right. your if you're not protecting your voice also, that could be a problem as you're going on. I mean, since you hadn't done this kind of stuff in a long time, how how did your voice hold up? Yeah, from years of doing theater, I've always been able to project. In fact, that's probably a downfall because I'm always, hello, you know, I'm always projecting. So that wasn't any kind of problem. But it was funny, some of the feedback among my friends is like your voice has changed since you know, what, 25 years ago when I was out, let's see, I was about 26, 26 or 27, somewhere 25, 26, 27. When I did Star Trek, the next generation, it was season two finale again. It was a double episode arc. And then, yeah, just about 30 years, yeah, like 30 years later. And I was like, my voice changed. They go, yeah, it was much more husky and sultry and sexy back then. I'm like, 
what am I now? It was like old, basically. No, they're not old, but, and they were saying, why is it, why is your voice so kind of husky and sultry back then? And I thought I was in the middle of doing a play then, and we were doing eight shows a week for both of those episodes. I had a long running um, play where I was um, one of, I guess I was kind of the star. And uh, so I was used to really projecting and your voice does get a little bit raspy. Um, so it added something back then that I guess I don't have now. I just had the fresh, just screaming at children and animals and neighbors and boyfriends and husbands and everything else. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't tax my voice quite as much as doing a play. So you were very well practiced at yelling. That's good to know. Yes, yes, yes. And I know how to project from the diaphragm to yell. Yes. Which is a very important thing to note for folks out there who do want to do voiceover work, especially you got to know how to, how to project your voice the right way and not blow out your, your voice box. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you just mentioned you were doing this recording in a whole big room, whatever, but I want to know about the script process because, you know, the Star Trek process, I'm sure, you know, it was secretive in the 80s and 90s, but today it's like I've heard much, much, much more okay. secretive. So talk so to me about that. what happened. Like an armored truck rolled up to my house and two armed police officers hand me the script and I have to raise my right hand and put my left hand on the Bible. I mean, not really, but basically it's... I mean, I thought you weren't lying right there. So that sounds like a pretty <laughs> accurate story. Acting. Um, yeah. It was ridiculous. So uh, I, I first they just sent me what's called the sides. I'm sure your, you know, fan base knows what the sides are, which is just the scenes that I'm in. And then uh, once I approved and signed a, you know, signed my life away in contracts that I wouldn't tell anything and say anything or ruin anything, they sent me the script. And they also had copies of the script when I went into the uh, the sound studio. So I, I knew my, you know, scene sort of by heart and I knew where uh, the season was going to end. And basically I just had to be sworn to silence. I mean, you know, or they follow my kids to school. You know? I mean, honestly, none of this sounds again like a lie. That sounds pretty accurate to what I've heard from folks on the new shows. So, yeah, I'm not going to question it beyond that. Well, uh, let's try not to get anybody assassinated today. Yeah. Um, yeah. But let's, let's talk about the episode itself now. I mean, uh, what was it like reading those lines uh, and just having to do the techno babble again? I imagine you, you didn't miss the techno babble. Yeah, well, you know, what was it different? Um, the, the episode that aired last week on lower decks, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the star date in and they had me do that several times. And then when the episode hit, they had, I think captain Freeman reading the, the star date in and saying all the mumble jumble and then introducing me. And it was, at first, I was like, oh, my God, they took my few precious lines away. And then I realized it was to introduce. There's never in the script an introduction of who I am. And they do that in that start date. So there was a reason for, you know, robbing me of my five techno lines. Um, nacelles. I had to say the word nacelles. It's like, is it nacelles? It's, you know, there was a few of them that I had to look up and learn how to say. And then I asked ahead of time before we, you know, rolled on ADR, the looping, the voiceover stuff how to say them properly and practice it a couple of times. Cause you have to act like you say those kinds of lines all the time. It's like, would you like French toast and coffee and eggs? Would you like some cream with your coffee? It has to be that kind of natural. And I had forgotten how to do that, but it was fun too. It was a fun challenge. I, I would love to do it full time, but you know, I had my own ship that, you know, floated away, but who knows? You never know. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll see you back. And uh, I know yeah. that you just watched the episode very recently also because you just found out it came out. And um, yeah, so had you actually seen what your character looked like yet? Was this your first time watching it when you saw the episode? Yes, it was my first time. They wouldn't, they don't leak anything, even to their own actors who've signed non-disclosures with, 
you know, threat of death. They just don't trust anybody. And that's because they wanted to they wanted to tweet it out and have the Twitterverse go nuts. And so they, they want to be able to control that, which I understand. You know, the fan base is rabid for any little bits of information. So, uh, yeah, I didn't get to see anything. Um, but I, I didn't mind. I, I was, um, you know, pleased with the way I looked, I guess. I mean, they you know, they made me animated. My eyes were bigger. My boobs were bigger. My hips were even a little bigger. I was like, no, you could have actually, you could have made the hips smaller. That, But, you know, anyway, it was fun to see myself. Not bad at all. It was weird, though. Um, I felt like the sound of my voice, which you don't really hear. I mean, you don't go back and listen to the sound of your voice. The sound of my voice having been professionally done didn't, to me, seem to exactly match the animation. I mean, it was synced up. But it was like that voice would come out of that character. I still sound like I'm about 18. And she had to sound you know, more authoritative. It seems to me if I were to go back, I would lower my voice and have a little bit more command. I would be a little bit more authoritative and, you know, kind of pretend I was a Picard, you know, female version of Picard or something. But here I am squeaking away and running my ship, I sounded exactly like I was about to spill hot chocolate over somebody. I, I felt like I didn't grow vocally at all. <laughs> you know? I'd beg to differ. And it was pretty fun that they did get a little uh, coffee spill joke in there as well. That was pretty nice. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, hopefully we have not seen the last of Captain Sonia Gomez. And I'm sure it's really cool again having your own ship now, too. It must be really exciting to have your own ship. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we do get to see a lot more of you. I, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anything else to even ask you about, but I, I imagine there's probably not much we could even talk about if there is future stuff. So it's probably hush-hush, isn't it? I don't know. They haven't told me. The thing is, if uh, I probably know by now if I was coming back because they would start, they would be, well, that's not true. I might have like a month and a half. I might get a surprise call. That's true. Um, and the upside is they've already basically done the hard work of creating the character. All they got to do is just pop you in now. So you can hello? come in probably whenever you want. No, please. I know from your from your podcast to God's ears. <laughs> well, I hope so. I mean, I feel like we, we were part of helping uh, get you on the show. That's, that's my belief. Even though we weren't. I'm going to pretend I was. Cool. Do it. I don't yeah, mind. Why not? Yeah. So, you know, we talked about a lot of different things that you've done over your career in the last episode we did with you, which was, again, very encompassing. And I recommend for folks who are new to Trek Untold, go back and check out that episode because it's really great. It's, one, it's still, honestly, one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. Uh, it was just it was such an amazing episode. And, you know, in terms of the Hollywood stories, we talked about Star Trek. We talked about your time in Total Recall as the three-boobed lady, which is amazing. Uh, we talked about so many really great things you did, but there's a few things we missed because I don't want to take up your entire day last time. So uh, if you don't mind, let's just I want to ask you a few Hollywood stories here right now. And I want to start with uh, a really fun one. Uh, Hunter. I don't know if you remember your time on Hunter. You did a two-parter on that show where you played the Snow Queen, and that's why I had to ask you about this because, like, I found some footage of that, and that's that is something else. And not only that, you know, aside from you getting to play this fun Snow Queen character, you're also acting with Dennis Franz and Dennis Farana, and I, I want to hear about those guys. It was the pilot of Hunter, and it was so it was a two-hour episode, and it was called the Snow Queen, and I was the Snow Queen. I was um. You know, back then Coke was in, I guess. Yeah, it was about 1984, 85, when cocaine was all the rage before crack had kind of, you know, hit. And I was a, a drug dealer. And um, it was Dennis Farina and Dennis Franz, both of them. It was their very first acting job. Both of them. I couldn't believe it. I was like the veteran. So I was kind of, um, it was fun to work with them. They were very authentic. They were very them. They're very real. And the directors of those episodes kind of let them 
do their thing if they forgot lines or if they needed to improv. So they got a, they were cut a big break because it was their, I was probably getting their sad cards. I was amazed. I was really amazed. So it was fun working with them. Yeah. Um, there are a few stories working with um, the lead. Um, he was, what was his name? Fred Dreyer. Fred Dreyer, famous NFL football player. Uh, the first day we met, he was really, really sweet, extremely tall and rather I guess quarterbacks aren't supposed to be bulky because he was he was trim and tall and very, very impressive and super sweet. He was a macrobiotic and he had a special chef. And I was like, how could he be a pro athlete and eat absolutely no meat? But macrobiotics, you can, you know, if you mix a bean and a, and a grain together, that equals a whole protein. And so he was telling me all about macrobiotics and he had his own chef on the set and everything. And he even gave me some of his food. And literally I became a macrobiotic from meeting him and I learned how to cook it. And I took classes. I've never been so healthy. It reverted back to macaroni and cheese and pizza and everything, but it was really nice to have that experience with him. Um, The other thing I remember very, very clearly was uh, I, I get, thrown into a pool during a fight scene and it was the in the second episode it was towards the end thank goodness and we were shooting in a mansion in Las Feliz in the middle of December and I'm in hookery you know blow clothes which is you know not well dressed let's just put it that way and I had to be thrown in and out of the pool a bunch of times and I had to sit there shaking and, you know, if you've ever if anyone who knows anything about TV and all, all of your fan base, I'm sure knows you shoot something over and over and over again from different angles and close ups and far away and all the other cast members. And I ended up getting pneumonia because I was soaking wet in the middle of December. The pool was not heated. When you see me shaking, I'm really that wasn't method work. Um, I was freezing and I ended up getting pneumonia. So. Oh, that was a little rough. Would you say that you were dressed more conservatively in this or in Chopper Chicks from Zombie Town? It was all around the same era where, you know, sluttiness was in, um, I guess. And I think we we touched on this before. Ethnic was not in in the 80s. Um, I'm ethnic. So I was relegated to, you know, prostitutes, drug addicts, runaways, maids, the Italian girl next door. Um, Anything that wasn't the white lead, which was a drag because I loved acting. And I was really hoping to move up in my career, but um, ethnic wasn't in. It really wasn't until Jennifer Lopez and even Madonna kind of broke, broke it a little bit for, you know, hip hop and for multi races to be able to hold larger characters. But I was always told constantly, we're looking for someone all American, all American, all American. You never even hear that term anymore, but that's what I was competing against. So, yeah, I mean, Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town, I played, um, what was it? I was a, a motorcycle chick on a bike, and I learned how to ride from that um, film, um, and I still ride. I went riding this weekend. That's why my hair is all screwed up. So um, <laughs> um, I still ride a motorcycle. I'm the only one from the gang who still rides, except for the casting director. So, but, but let me, I'll go back to the Snow Queen. So um, it was the era where Coke was done a lot on the sets. It was, I don't say, I'm not saying it was done openly. Like you're not on the set 
but if you're in the bathroom or during a break in your dressing room. And so um, I was during that time, I was playing someone who was on Coke. And, I, and to be quite honest, I, there was a little bit in my system as well. We won't um, tell anybody. It's fine. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations has ended on that one. Yeah. I mean, it was 30 years ago. So it was a long time ago. But um, and then one one um, one night, um, I think it was probably a Sunday night. I was at a party where they they were doing tequila shots. And um, so again, this is like the mid eighties and I was young. Everybody was kind of partying and I thought, Oh, that worm is supposed to give you hallucinogenic. So I asked if I could swallow the worm and I did. Oh God. I swallowed the worm. I couldn't get to sleep that night. Um, my call was 5.00 AM. Um, so I think I got to sleep maybe at three, maybe. And so that whole next day, I don't know if I was hungover or if it was the worm, but I was in a little bit of a, and, you know, I was told over and over again, you're such a good actor. You're such a good actor. You're really playing the part of someone on drugs. And I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's just, I studied hard and, you know, but I actually was a little bit stoned. So that was, those were the days. You, you know, you don't get away with those things anymore at all these days. The, the entire culture has changed. You know, it's really, really, really different. You have to, um, well, you have to do drug tests um, and you have to get a physical and that's all before they'll even let you step on a set. So everything is very, very conservative and cleaned up. I mean, even a hint of uh, any kind of addiction, it's just not tolerated. And back in the eighties, oh my gosh. And all before then, it was completely tolerated, if not encouraged. Mm. As long as it didn't slow down production, you could do whatever you want. So well, remember, kids, winners don't do drugs. Uh, and Trek Untold, legal disclaimer here, we do not support or condone the use of illegal drugs and substances. Hold on a second. Hey, hey. <laughs> you can kid. see that, young lady. I'm kidding. <laughs> And I feel I bad now because, you know, we're, we're talking about some of the uh, earlier roles that you had where you were playing those terrible hooker roles. And guess what I'm going to ask you about next? Uh, you playing Dixie the Hooker from Lethal Weapon. We didn't talk about that last time? I don't think we did. I think I think we touched on it a little bit briefly, but we didn't really get to go too in-depth on it, I feel like. No, so. It was literally like the 20th hooker I played. So yeah. I got really good at playing hookers. I nailed every audition. And I don't know why. I mean, it's not like I'm a method actor. So it's not like I went around. Well, using nail her. might not be the best uh, choice of words in discussing playing a hooker role. Right. So anyway, she opens up, I guess, the first um, in the series of movies of Lethal Weapon. Um, my friend who's also a prostitute, uh, I give her drugs and she jumps. And apparently um, I might be responsible for her death. And I'm interviewed by Denny Clover. And uh, the next morning, and I'm still in my hooker garb and high heels. And when I kind of stumble like that, I actually did stumble. Um, you know, the famous line from that is all dressed up and nowhere, no one to blow. All dressed up and no one to blow. He says that, actually. So it was fun to do that. It was just a day's work. Um, but another kind of mini infamous character. I think you see me later in the movie in a body bag. But that wasn't me. <laughs> I got to meet Mel Gibson in the audition process, funny enough. And he's, he's short. He's short like Tom Cruise is short. Were you auditioning with him or was he just there watching? He was just there watching for some reason. It was just me, the casting director. And he happened to be in the hallway and he was welcomed in. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got it. You know, 
interview in front of Mel Gibson. And I was young and he was really cute, but I was told he's married and he doesn't fool around. I was like, shit, darn it. And he has, he had the cutest, tightest buns. It was when men wore jeans that were really, really tight and slightly bell-bottomed still. I don't know. Very tacky now. But uh, that was that was nice. He was very, very friendly, very, very professional. And I was like, oh, drat. He's so cute. He was very, very cute. So that's all I have to say about Lethal Weapon, really. <laughs> well, just general question. I mean, you talk about being in the room doing the audition with Mel Gibson. But uh, were there any other auditions you ever did that were, like, very intimidating to you because there was one of the big stars in there or a big director in there with you? Yes. Um, when I first started out, I was a dancer on the series Fame. I um it gave me my SAG card. I got to act in the pilot and I was a regular dancer on this series. And once in a while, they give me talking lines and stuff. But in the first season, um, I auditioned for Flashdance. And I met those, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer and, and Don, what's his name? Don Simpson? Big, big, big directors who did all of those films. And Adrian Line, who was a huge, produ- a huge director at that time. Um, so I got to meet him and he was British and he was a little intimidating. Um, and so that was really fun. They followed me, uh, to the set. They got permission to watch me rehearse at MGM, um, for fame. And I think they, to be really frank, they were shadowing me so much and they invited me to a bunch of parties that they were studying me for the script. I don't know if I was ever really meant to get the role, um, that eventually ended up going to Jennifer Beals. Um, But the way I dressed, the way I took clothes off without, you know, taking my bra off, without taking my shirt off and the way I acted and moved and, you know, my whole mannerisms and stuff, a lot of my behavior and even the way I talked showed up in the movie and dialogue and in behavior and stuff like that. But I did get to screen test for it. Um, I didn't do well. I was, I was very, very young. I, kind of, I felt a little over my head, but the toughest part is I'm with the lead actor, the the love interest, and we're talking and they gave me dry saltine crackers to pretend it was lobster. So I remember eating these crackers and my mouth is dry and I've got crackers in my mouth and I'm trying to talk and say these lines. And I I kept judging myself the whole time. I was like, stupid asshole, you're fucking up. So I didn't do very well in the screen test, but, uh, it did give me a taste of the big time, I suppose. <laughs> and it tasted very salty and dry. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> well, again, for folks, if you want to hear more about Alicia's Hollywood stories, like I said, check out our first episode we did with Alicia, where we talked a lot more about fame. We talked about Total Recall. We talked about uh, Clan of the Cave Bear. We talked about a lot of stuff besides just Star Trek, and it's a lot of fun. So do check that out. Um, but yeah, you know, these days, you know, I know you're working right now with your charity, Drive by Do Gooders, and we talked about that last time and some of the challenges you were starting to face now in the middle of the pandemic. So uh, I'd love to just kind of uh, tell our new listeners what Drive by Do Gooders is all about and uh, what has happened since we talked to you basically about a year ago. Well, things have been actually going well. Um, so um, I have a, an SUV and I've got a couple of high school students and we all jump in the car on Sundays. Um, and we give out bottled water, body wipes, cheese, you know, cold string cheese, socks, feminine products, toilet paper, you know, anything that are basic human essentials to some of the elderly and disabled poor that live on the outskirts, on the streets, basically in Skid Row. And we serve about 150 people a week. And, you know, we do this every single week. I've been doing it since 2013. So, 
Um, the pandemic, we never stopped. We still, you know, went out with masks. In fact, we give masks out. You know, we start early Sunday morning making bags of goodies, making these baby wipes that we infuse with rubbing alcohol. And we put them in little zip bags as little baths in a bag. Because believe it or not, there's 12,000 people that live in 20 square blocks in Skid Row. And a lot of them are elderly. And a lot of them are disabled. And a lot of them are the same people from 2013 that society and the government and everybody have just given up on. And there are no water fountains. There's very, very, very few bathrooms. Unfortunately, they have to use buckets as bathrooms. So we provide a lot of hygiene, a lot of water. Um, our little, one of our catchphrases is hydration and hygiene to the heart of the homeless. And we hand out from my car window like an ice cream truck. We can't, that's why we're called drive-by do-gooders. We don't stop. We drive by the outskirts, up and down the streets, you know, yelling water, string trees, cleaning wipes, socks, masks, blah, blah, blah. And we all have a good time and they all know us. And uh, we take a lot of video and post it on Instagram every week uh, at, you know, drive-by do-gooders or me, my personal Facebook page, Lisi Knapp, or drive-by do-gooders page. We're on we're on all the media and we, we just have a really good time. They know us. They don't mind talking to us on camera, which is really nice because we don't want to um, exploit anybody. Um, and we really don't recommend anybody going down there and videotaping because these are, you know, they have family and they have some pride. I mean, just because they're poor, you know, doesn't mean they're bad people. And it's kind of been good. I mean, it's it, we, we, we make enough money to go out every week. Um, and you know, we really haven't expanded too much, but that's okay. You know, it's kind of a local hands-on grassroots kind of thing where, you know, I bring kids in the car where they get to really, um, experience hand-to-hand giving and it's a real dopamine hit, you know, it's a real instant reward of helping and feeling how good that feels to help, you know, and it breaks the stigma of, oh my God, homeless, poor people, let's, you know, pretend they don't exist, look the other way, or why don't they get a job, or all those things. It really isn't like that. They're somebody's uncle, somebody's grandparents, somebody's father, brother, mother, sister. You know, my brother used to be homeless for years and years and years. He's not anymore. Um, You know, he's got seven years of sobriety and has a great full-time job and is doing very well. But for decades, he was a meth head. So everyone, homelessness and drug addiction and alcoholism touch everybody's family. And so we're kind of trying to break that that wall of exclusion, like us and them, really just based on economics and addiction. You know, there are people just like us. So, you know, we really enjoy doing that every week. It's it's very rewarding. It, it sounds like it. And it is very important to, as you said, break that stigma, uh, because, you know, especially right now during the pandemic, especially like it, the, this is a community, a section of people that are really being ignored wholly. Uh, by a lot of local governments as well. They're not really getting the masks and the protection that they need to keep themselves safe, keep themselves hygienic during this very, very dangerous time right now that we live in. So, uh, you know, like how, how how much has the pandemic affected what you guys are doing and how has it changed the community as a whole? Well, it was really interesting. So we we basically go down to Skid Row, but we don't kind of go to the clusterfuck, the middle, where there's it's super crowded. We go to the outskirts where it's harder for some of the elderly and disabled folks to get services. And we noticed about two, three, four months into the pandemic that, I don't know why it took so long, that that the government realized the pandemic isn't going to end too soon. And they actually put in some portable potties, some bathrooms, and some uh, sanitation stations where you could wash your hands with soap and, and paper towels. And I was like, 
Why for the decades have they never had that there before? I mean, it's then towards the end of the pandemic, when we thought it was going to end back in January, they took them all out again. I guess because Los Angeles doesn't want to service them and it's expensive. And that's something that the homeless folk really complained to us about is like we had, you know, washing stations and then they took them out. And I was like, what the fudge? There's one bank of bathrooms that look similar to bathrooms um, at a beach um, that, it, uh, you know, located at one park. And that's it for 12,000 people. And the line is around the block to use them. And that's all they've got. I mean, it's really kind of shitty. So, you know, we've we just we can't solve the homeless problem, unfortunately, not even close. So we're just more like triage. We're just temporary help. You know, we go out there and we give as much sanitation and drinking water as we can and smiles and hope. And, you know, we try to have fun. And that's just just about all we can do to me. It's kind of honestly, Matthew, it's like recycling or paying taxes. You know, we don't feel great about ourselves that we're doing something. It's just something super necessary that I kind of need to do, you know, to just make things a little bit more balanced. I mean, I'm such a consumer. I live in a first world environment. You know, I've got hot water. I've got heat, air conditioning, um, blankets, a roof over my head. And then if I go literally 7.5 miles east, it's third world conditions. It's as bad as any photos you're ever going to see from Ethiopia or from Afghanistan. And it's right around the corner right here in downtown LA and every city in Los in, in the States probably has something similar. I mean, we've got a bigger problem because the weather is so great, you know? So Los Angeles is kind of the home of the homeless. Cause if you're going to be poor or if you're going to be addicted and it doesn't look like you've got a future, you know, and you can't really pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, you take a bus and become homeless here. So I'm not advocating for for the homeless. I try to stay out of the politics, but I don't necessarily serve Venice Beach and Santa Monica because that's the fresh meat. These are people who could maybe clean up and get a job if they weren't addicted. And they're more white, 18 to 35, 40 male addict types. Um, but Skid Row, it's it's. It's black, it's Mexican, there's a little bit of Asian, a little bit of white, and they are almost exclusively over 50, I mean, and 60 and 70. And it's like, wow, they've got really tough immune systems. Nobody's gotten COVID. You know, there's, you have to be rather strong to live on the streets for all those years. And we've kind of seen the same folks year after year after year. And they've made peace with it. They know how to get by. You know, we hope they're on lists for housing. Some of them are, and it takes time. Once in a while, we'll get a great success story. They'll say, hey, you're not going to see me anymore. You know, I, I, my number came up. I'm going to get an apartment. And we're like, yay. So sometimes there's good news. It's tough work what you're doing, but I think it's really important work. And really why I wanted to talk about it today, especially on the show, is, you know, we got a lot of Trekkies out there listening who might not know about what you're doing. And, you know, really Star Trek is about togetherness. It's about community. And, you know, what you're doing with these folks out there, these homeless people who are just, you know, having tough times or have had tough times for many, many years. Uh, I feel like what you're doing really reminds me that they're humans and also reminds you that you are human, that you're part of the same community of humankind. Right. Uh, and I think that's, that's really important. And that's also why I want folks out there who are listening today to really take action. Uh, you know, like I donated after our show as well. And uh, for folks who want to, you know, who are interested in doing that, by the way, it is tax deductible if that matters to you. Yeah. And um, you know uh, what? $4 goes a long way, honestly. I mean, it really does. We're not asking for millions. We're, we're just 
we also have no overhead, by the way. So it's not like I'm getting my nails done or getting my roots tied with drive-by money. Every penny we get goes directly to those who need it the most right away. I mean, we, you know, we get the money and we buy supplies. We get the money and we buy supplies. So, you know, donations go directly. Unlike, you know, uh, some other charities where there's a lot of overhead. They've got fancy stationery and they've got office staff and they've got big mailing lists. It's like, nah, it's just basically my friends and fans who throw us a little bit of change every month. And off we go doing good, driving by and doing good. So to all my listeners out there, all the people that are watching this on YouTube as well, you know, please try to take action if you're able to, uh, you know, even just supporting them on social media is helpful, following them, spreading the word about Drive by Do-Gooders. But if you are in a position to make any kind of donation, please feel free to do that. Uh, it's definitely a worthy cause. And, you know, like I said, you can see it, like Lisa said, you can see exactly where the money goes every weekend. You'll see them on Facebook, on YouTube, on uh, on Twitter, wherever they are on, on social Instagram, media, you'll see them yeah. in action. Yeah, go to drivebydogooders.org and there's lots of video up there and it's all recent. We're switching out the videos all the time and it's the homeless actually advocating for us. We're like, why do these wipes mean something? Or we'll do a whole video on socks or a whole video on cold string cheese or a whole vi- lots of videos on drinking water. So it's it's great. We It's completely impromptu. We say, would you mind? You know, before I throw up my camera and videotape them, I go, do you mind if um, would you say a few words to our donors who give us money for the string cheese? And they'll go, yeah, sure. You know, it really does help. It's kind of like emergency protein. And we just feel so grateful that they're willing to talk to us to help us raise money. And thanks for the shout out, Matthew. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. So one more time, folks, that's drivebydogooders.org. That's a .org website. Uh, and if you're in a position to donate, please do so. You're going to be directly helping folks who really need it. And uh, that's very important work that you're doing, Alicia. So I'm hoping that all my Trekkies out there, all my fellow Trekkies can help lend a hand in some way. Oh, my God, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the other thing I'll do is if you uh, donate 35 bucks, I'll send you a signed um, autograph picture. Oh, even better. So in that case, and tell them Trek Untold sent you when you do the donation. How about that? We'll make it easy. Yeah. Awesome. Please. That'd be great. And I know you don't really do a lot of conventions, so it's actually a pretty big deal, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I I kind of haven't done the conventions because I do have a lot of obligations um, and I'm kind of uh, alone doing them. Let's just put it that way. But I mean, if creation wanted me next year, you know, we haven't done anything for the last couple of years and I did miss... Um, the 40th anniversary of the next generation. But if they want me, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll do the convention next year if they want me to in Vegas. So we'll see. But in the meantime, if you want a guaranteed autographed picture of Licia, she just told you a way to do it, folks. And we didn't discuss that beforehand. So thank you for even offering to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Really cool yeah. I mean, I'll sign a Total Recall picture or a Star Trek picture, you know, um, or a Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town picture. Which is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Anything you want. Well, thank you, Lisa. We we appreciate that. And then, as always, we appreciate you giving us time to chat with us again today, doing our sequel, because, I mean, how, how rare does this happen, you know, that, that someone who did Star Trek TNG all the way back then gets to come back and revive the same characters. That's that's an amazing achievement. I know. I know. It was great. It was really cool. And with a smaller nose and bigger boobs. I mean, they, <laughs> they upgraded me. <laughs> Living the dream, right? <laughs> Living the dream as a captain of my own ship.
So again, Lisa, thank you very much, folks. Check out drivebydogooders.org. And uh, like I said, don't miss out on this opportunity to not only help some people, but you can get a really awesome autograph picture too from someone who doesn't really do these cons that much. So take Lisa up on that offer. I'm going to be doing that right now. In fact, once we finish recording this. So Alicia, again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And I hope we get to see you again in Lower Deck Season 3, 4, 5. Let's, let's see. Let me, we'll do it again. Bye. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Woohoo! That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. And thank you for checking it out. One more time, if you're not following us on social media, please do so by checking us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. That's all one word, no spaces, on any of those platforms. If you want to check out the video version of this podcast to see our guests, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where I post the video version of this show every Sunday after the initial episode airs on Thursdays. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions who create 3D-printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're in a position to financially support Trek Untold, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to become one of our Patreon supporters. There's a lot of cool perks that you can get by becoming a Patreon supporter, including early access to the episodes, the ability to ask our guests questions, and a lot more cool stuff coming very soon. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or any other audio platforms that you listen to the show on that allow you to do so. Or if you're one of our YouTube audience members, please make sure you comment on this video and give it a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by TrekSphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.